Between the Sheets, episode number 435. I'm your host, Chris Zellner, joined as always by my co-host, David Bixen Span. And Bix, we got a uh, fun-looking show this week as we uh, go back to 1990. But uh, you had an interesting weekend as uh, you attended the GCW show in Brooklyn. And uh, you did pay for your ticket, right? Yes. <laughs> so... Yes, so Bix does actually pay for his tickets, folks. He's not, uh, he's not, um, you know, getting free freebies from uh, Brett Lauderdale. So I'm not, I'm not demanding a table to work at like Mike Johnson. <laughs> but uh, maybe so demanding was... is the wrong word, but still. Well, how was the show? It was good. Um, it was it, also nice that our dear friend MLJ. Uh, because his birthday was, well, I guess technically a couple hours after the show ended, he, he got a cake and a birthday celebration in the ring at the end of the show. So that was that was nice. And, you know, getting to see him and Prazak. And, his, his face didn't go in it, though. What's up with that? Well, he's a baby face, brother. Um, it's a cake <laughs> in wrestling. It's, I mean, he should have been in it. His, his, his face should have been inside that cake. I'm not sure if it was after the uh, fight. TV broadcast went off the air or not. So maybe maybe that affects that uh, mm-hmm. the calculus of whether or not someone will go in the cake. But yeah, so yeah, good to see them and Dominic Carini and others who were on the show. So Well, there we go. So uh, if I, you know, is that up on Fight TV on demand or whatever? On Fight Plus, on? yes, yes. It was... It was a very busy weekend for indie wrestling, both in general and, like, this week in New York City, too. Like, there were, like, House of Glory ran opposite SmackDown and drew what looked like maybe their biggest crowd in a long time. Uh, you know, Casanova Valentine with his no-ring thing ran a show after SmackDown, and then there was this on Sunday in Brooklyn, and then, uh, ML- well, I guess MLW's not indie, but MLW, you know, well, at the, at the time we're recording this, they're running this Thursday in Queens, but, you know, last Thursday when this comes out. And then there was all just the other stuff just running, period, high-profile indies. There was the other GCW show over the weekend. There was the Revolver show on Saturday. There was the West Coast Pro show on Sunday. There was Black Label Pro with Slamilton on Saturday. So there was a lot going on. A busy week. Yes, yes. Now, we don't have any sheet writers wrestling in 1990, though. Yeah, Sean Ross Sapp got to wrestle for Black Label over the weekend, but uh, it was interesting to see. Uh, well, this is around time Dave Meltzer supposedly had his training, so he probably could have wrestled. Oh, whatever training he did in, uh, what did he call it? What turned into the FMW promotion? Yeah. So basically, it, it, someone tra- taught him something in Wally Yamaguchi's basement wrestling ring, basically. Yeah, so, so he did, anyway. He didn't know all right, well, let's go to uh, the week that was December 6th through the 14th of 1990. And yes, oh, so we got so, more than a week, yes. Yeah, because we're filling gaps. We uh, did November 29th through December 5th on show 124. And we did December 15th through the 21st on show 333. Hmm. So it was a gap filler. And uh, it's an interesting week um, as we start with uh, the fairly newly christened world championship wrestling. Oh, it's 
Okay, it's when were the first shows branded? I I want. It was December the first. That's okay. That's why I pulled up the calendar. Yeah. So the the it was the weekend was the first and second, and then yeah. So that's not in our week. So it's just before our week that all of a sudden, without any real fanfare, the show. I mean, well, you didn't. Well, actually, no. Did did Power Hour have a WCW graphic? Because I don't remember seeing it until main event on Sunday. Uh, I think it started on on World Championship Wrestling, which of course is WCW anyway. I don't um, think they had an oh so I don't think they had NWA in the logo. Any, oh, so it would have been on the Chiron, right? Because the Chiron still said yeah. NWA until that. Well, point. they talked about it. I mean, they talked about it on the on the TV shows. Really, I do not remember that at all. Uh, they, about the you know, what did they say it meant? Just said that I mean, just basically was saying that it's now WCW, you know, WCW main event, and um, I don't know about the syndicated shows that weekend, but uh, I, yeah. I okay, I'm curious to look that up. Not well right now, obviously. I'm pretty sure I, it was said. I, remember, I don't I remember them explaining a word of this. Well, they didn't explain it. I just saying it was WCW. I don't remember them saying any, like, acting like anything changed. I mean, I just remember the, the graphics. Well, they, they quit talking. I mean, basically, they were talking about Sting being the WCW heavyweight champion. You know, not the NWA heavyweight champion anymore. Mm. So, stuff like that. So, all right. Well, plenty of speculation continues over who the new WCW booker will be. While the timing of Dusty Rose giving notice and just how deep his burial with WF has become, over this weekend he did jobs every night at the Virgil and 90 seconds clean the middle. As someone joked, they got Dusty doing jobs for valets this week. Next week he'll be putting over the travel agents. Makes him certainly the top rumored candidate. At the same time, the top brass in WCW is insistent that they haven't even spoken with him about the job. WCW's floating around names like Terry Funk, Eddie Gilbert, Ken Mantell, and even Jerry Jarrett. Suppose the Cowboy Bill Watts is not interested in the job. As for other candidates, Jarrett's name is interesting if only because he's still running the USWA. And this may be part of an attempt to keep Joe Pettacino's group from getting off the ground. Uh-huh. We'll have a lot on that later. As for Terry Funk, he is a champion for Pettacino's group. He'll be a key personality on his television. Dave is saying at this point that the USWA is Joe Pettacino's group. And, uh, of course, Gilbert was the one scheduled to put together Pettacino's television. Those close to Gilbert say he's with Pettacino strongly and isn't even interested in returning to WCW. Ken Mantell isn't involved in wrestling right now, so it would seem the easiest candidate to get. Mantell was the booker for you know, world-class promotion during his glory years with the famous Freebirds, Von Erics, and Valet Feuds, and then went to Mid-South and for the, their change to UWF and was the booker until the last few months or so of the promotion's existence. He then started his own Wild West Federation in Texas, which wasn't going anywhere. Then with Fritz, Von Erich became disenchanted with the wrestling business. He was able to buy into the world-class office, but the deal was structured in Von Erich's favor, and after he ran the promotion for several months, was booted out. The promotion is expected to name a booker sometime in January. So, the key to me to know when this... Chain when Dusty was officially announced as the Booker, and I don't know when the when the first promo was, but the first time they talked about War Games being a Russell War, 
I just watched the December 22nd, 1990 World Championship Wrestling, and they already are doing promos for the Wrestle War pay-per-view talking about being War Games. Because they hadn't used War Games since 89. But now, they had since and, Dusty left, but not since They had since Dusty left, yes. They had since Dusty left, but they hadn't since then. And, I think, and I'm pretty positive that the reason why it was used in 89 was because of Kevin Sullivan. Because Kevin Sullivan probably got Dusty's blessing, so to speak, to do the, to do the, the War Games gimmick because of their relationship. But Kevin Sullivan, you know, is not part of the uh, booking team, and you know, after the whole thing in 1990. So, well, and we we also know that Eddie Gilbert story, not for the pay per view war games, but for the Atlanta Bash on Tour war games, which I think is the only other '89 one, right? I think it's just those two. There may have been another one, but we know that story Eddie Gilbert told and. Was it the 93 Wrestling Flyer interview where, yeah, because he's talking about his relationship with Jim Crockett, that he would claim that, you know, like, he was the only person that would take Jim Crockett's calls in 89, and that Crockett was the one who suggested they do the Omni War games. Gilbert went along with it, and I guess it drew better to his satisfaction than they anticipated. So that there's that too, that Crockett has some degree of indirect input at that point as well. Whereas I don't think he does in ninety. Yeah. So Yeah. But again, that's a sign to me that something was going on. But we got another sign that something's going on in just a little bit. Yes, but I mean, and maybe we'll get to this more then, but it's like, to me, it's less interesting when did Dusty become the booker and more when did he secretly agree to come in as booker? Because he's obviously given his notice. Mm -hmm. He's being booked as if he's given his notice. Mm -hmm. If he gave 90 days, okay. How is he being booked on the house shows going into Survivor Series? Well, it's the Dusty Dustin feud with uh, DiBiase and Virgil. So it's still the tag team matches and Dustin could do jobs and whatever. Basically. Because, I mean, they already had got the polka dots off of him. Well, the, he's wearing red polka dots at this point in time. But he's not always um, wearing them. He's doing jobs for DiBiase in singles matches. But still, that's a pushed guy. Yeah. So he's doing jobs for DiBiase in singles matches um, pretty much everywhere. That's in November. And when does that start? That's in November. Uh, if I go to October, he's pinning DiBiase in October. Well, he pins him in Greensboro. But he loses to him. He's losing to him everywhere else. And he's just uh, taking pinfall losses the whole time. Yeah, I mean interference losses. But uh, I'm trying to see when he got like his last singles, big singles win. Yeah, I'm using cage match to try to figure that out, which doesn't mention the interference and stuff. But at least to see when his wins were, uh, as I go through. His last, 
if this is right, his last big singles win was August 30th over Macho in a cage that we have a record of. He did also beat Savage in a lumberjack match the next day, or the, uh, two days later, I should say. In Warwick, Rhode Island, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah and then he starts a DiBiase feud, he, and he just starts jobbing away. So do we think he gave his notice then? And that's at the beginning of September. Because that wouldn't make it September, October, November, December. When does he actually 110% start with WCW? Um, the second week of January? Okay. No, because he's still in WWF. Well, I mean, it's after the Royal Rumble, if, if you want to go with that. So we'll call it, what, five months? Yeah. But he may not have gave notice in September. So are we? So, but yeah, he's already being booked this way. But the 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 real egregious stuff is this ver is this Virgil run. Yeah. So, I mean, he would have given ninety days though. So it's it. I mean, is there a point where he starts being beaten clean? I guess that would be the question that we know of. Yes, yeah, in October. October okay. November. So it that fits the timeline of when it stops being interference finishes. Yeah. Okay. So that that explains that then at least. So he So if he had actually given his notice, why aren't they able to say he's gonna be the booker? Because he's still in the company. He's still in WF on television. Mm-hmm. In an, in a fairly big angle. Okay. So it's just weird that it's being kayfabe to the degree it is on the inside, I guess. Well, it just is. Hmm. All right, the NWA, which it appears is phasing out the NWA name just after winning rights to that name as of Sunday. The main event show was changed to WCW main event. That's the first. Okay, so wait, 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 wait. Before we even get to the Lawrence Taylor thing, what rights to the name did they win? What is Dave skipping over here? I don't know. Filmed the seven interviews of the weekend with Lawrence Taylor to help hype the January 11th Meadowlands show. Taylor will be in the corner of Lex Luger for a football match, of course, football gear, against the big cat, Curtis Hughes, who was managed for the night by Polly Dangerously. The Taylor interview will appear on the Christmas Eve episode of the WPIX uh, NWA show, or WCW, it is now. Uh, as most of you know, WF have a show that same night in Nassau Coliseum with Roddy Piper against, and Kerry Von Erich against Teddy Biasi Mr. Perfect, plus Jake DeSnate versus Rick Martell as a double headliner. It'll be interesting to see what Taylor's impact will be at the gate. Truthfully, without Taylor giving the NWA crowds of late, they would think that they would have drawn 4,500 to 5,000 fans. Anything above that can probably be attributed to Taylor. At the same time, Dave's belief is Taylor would have had a lot more impact. There was more of a storyline leading to his appearance, ran the pretty obvious attempt to use his name to draw fans with no storyline lead-in. If the NWA was in position to have more general public appeal, Taylor may have helped a lot in delivering marginal fans. He'll help some, but most are saying that anything more than 7,000 fans for the show would be considered an improvement of what is expected. Of course, with the New York Giants and a probable spot in the playoff game, either the following day or the day after, this will give NWA some rare mainstream media publicity commenting on the entire situation. Dangerous is going to try and build a grudge between himself and Taylor for the show, both on the local TV and on local radio shows. Taylor did say in media interviews that Dangerous interferes in a match, he'll take care of him. This is one of those rare times in this era where WCW got lucky because Taylor happened to be on 
the Giants in a year that the Giants was the best team in the NFL and was about to become Super Bowl champions. And he's doing that show during the playoffs. I mean, they couldn't have asked for it better because they played, I think the Bears game. Okay. What was the date on the Meadowlands show? Mix? January 11th. Okay. It's the title change show. Two days later, they beat the Bears at Giant Stadium. That's an individual playoff game. So, you couldn't ask for better. And this was, a, you know, a, a big deal on the television. You know, so Lawrence Taylor at this time was big-time star in the NFL. Like uh-huh. I said, on the best team in New York. And it made WCW look like something on a national level at that time, and not just local. Yeah. Like it's a, a southern wrestling promotion. Yes. Now, the Meadowlands show draws 5,000, but that show was in the middle of a famously bad snowstorm, where it was one of those times where everyone kind of conceded that it did affect the attendance. And where was different than that Nassau? Uh, I think that's what Dave said, right? No, you just said they were running a show that night in, in, in New York. I thought he said Nassau. Or Nassau um, was a different show. Oh, the, yeah, Nassau oh, yeah, was a different yeah, show. Yeah, you're right, you're right. Forgot that already. Yeah, Nassau Coliseum. So, what's the what's the distance between Long Island and uh, East Rutherford? Let's see, Nassau Coliseum to, I guess if I'm looking it up on Google, even though it's not operating anymore, I'll say Izod Center. Three minutes. So that's sixty-three minutes. I mean, it depends. If you, I put door to door of the two buildings. So it it ranges from at least based on what the directions are with the traffic at the second we're recording, it it's it's it, yeah it's in the hour ranges fifty six to an hour four depending on which interstate and stuff you use. So it's not I mean those are general like we've talked about before when WWF would run like the multiple the same weekend and stuff in the in the market. Like, those are not supposed to be drawn from the same audience, necessarily. MSG is the one that draws from everywhere, not Nassau yeah. or Meadowlands. Um, no attendance listed, at least on History of WWE for the Nassau show, which was... Let's see what we have here. So yeah, Piper and Carrie over Perfect and Virgil subbing for DiBiase. Martel over Jake. Uh... Heart Foundation over Power and Glory, and that's about it for notable matches. Yeah, so, I mean, in WCW, you had Flair and Sting with, you know, title and then Luger football match with LT, so WCW had probably the better-looking Star Power show. Yeah. So. Although neither exactly ran a deep card. Well. Because uh, looking at the WCW show... Aside from, I mean, and even then, it's a Luger Big Cat. It's, you know, it's not exactly a formidable challenger, but other you also had Steiner's Master Blasters. Yeah. Because the Master Blasters, I guess, still technically exist by January 11th. Uh, Eligante, Tommy Rich and Ricky Morton over the Freebirds of Bobby Eaton. Sid over Pillman. Wall Street over Taylor. Uh, Brad Armstrong, is he the Candyman at that point? Mm, still, I think yes, but very soon not to be. 
he's uh, he's Candyman in the red trunks as opposed to Candyman in the candy stripe tights, basically. Yes. He beat Cuban Assassin, and the opener was uh, Tom Zank over Black Angel under a mask. With, look, what, what am I saying? Black Angel, who was Jose Luis Rivera under a mask. Mm-hmm. All right, well, we got some house shows during our way to talk about. Sioux City, Iowa on the 6th drew 1,000 fans as the juicer beat Barry Horowitz by disqualification. And then Sam Houston beat Barry Horowitz. Master Blasters over Tim Horner and Alan Iron Eagle. Michael Wall Street over Harley Race. Rick Steiner over Jerry Sags. Lex Luger over the Big Cat. Brian Pillman over Motor City Man Man, clean by pinfall. And Rick Flair and Arn Anderson beat the team of Butch Reed and Larry Cameron. Same crew in St. Joseph, Missouri. The next night drew about 500. While in Greenville, Flair and Arn beating Reed and Cameron drew 2,000 fans in a cage match, which Dave believes was the largest crowd of the week. Yes, we got some doozies coming up on some of these attendances. Yeah. Um, Juicer is already working out his notice at this point, right? Yeah, he's gone. He's been fired, but he's still working shows. Yes. Memphis, no attendance listed at the Coliseum. Mr. Coliseum on, de- on December 7th had uh, Z-Man over Dutch Mantel. Southern Boys over Bobby Eaton and Wild Bill Irwin. Norman over Joe Kazana. Freebirds over Tommy Rich Ricky Morton. JYD over the Iron Sheik. Brian Noms over Rick Steiner and Lumberjack match. on The Nasty Boys last night in the company. And Sting over Sid Vicious. Then we got Augusta on the 8th, where we had Terry Taylor over Moondog Rex, Zinc over the Sheik, Jimmy Garvin over Tommy Rich, Southern Boys over the State Patrol, Rick Stunner Bobby Eaton, Luger over Big Cat, and Flair and Arn over Reed and Cameron in the cage. Then we go to Raleigh on December 13th. 450 fans at the Dorton Arena. That okay. ain't good. Dutchman over the Juicer with his feet on the ropes. One star. Moondog Rex over Ty Stan with his feet on the ropes. Dud. So your first two matches had the same exact finish. WCW, everybody. Feet on the ropes. Conan over Bobby Eaton. Started out good for five minutes until Conan blew out his knee and they were on the mat the next seven. But still the best match on a poor card. Star on three quarter. Conan against Bobby Eaton. Thank you, Donnie. Sure. Uh, Ricky Morton and Tommy Rich over to State Patrol. One star. JYD over Wobble Irwin in 30 seconds. Dud. Tom Zeke over see Bad Bad. Dud. Rick Steiner over Jimmy Garvin, although he pinned Little Richard Marley. Three quarters of a star. <sighs> and Lex Luger big cat by DQ when Mad Men interfered and Steiner, Juicer, and Zink made a save when it was over. Star and a half. You see why this show drew 450 fans. Holy shit. God almighty. I mean, this is... <laughs> This is a national wrestling promotion. And you look at some of these house show lineups, I'm like, what in the fuck? There are indie shows in this era that had more star power than WCW did on some of these shows. Yeah. I mean, that's terrible. They take TV in Gainesville on the 10th before 1,300 fans, where Conan, Larry Cameron, and the Minotaur debuted. So on the one taping, we have Conan... Larry Cameron and Steve DeSalvo all making their TV debuts. That is amazing. 
Conan first worked as a babyface against Barry Horowitz, and then as a heel in a six-man team with Big Cat and Motor City Madman. I don't think that one aired. I don't think so either, but good lord. Oh, so, so, <laughs> does that mean there was a chance we could have gotten a Motor City Madman, Big Cat, Conan, and maybe a partner managed by Paulie dangerously against Lex Luger, Vader, Tommy Rich, and Ricky Morton feud? <laughs> Goodness. Mm. Let's continue. Lee Scott refed as Mike Atkins blew out his knee. Brad Armstrong returned, not only that, in the sixth man team with Morton and Rich against Freebirds and Bobby Eaton. Brad pinned Eaton to win the match. Minotaur had two white contacts, so he's Jake Roberts times two. Yeah. They did things to build up a Tom St. Bobby Eaton feud for the TV title. Pillman and Mantel, why are they wasting Pillman like that? And Steiner's Master Blasters. Just last week, they set a program with the Freebirds. Well, they're kind of still doing the Freebirds program, as I just watched on the 22nd TV. Larry Cameron is managed by Teddy Long and challenged Lex Luger. Did Larry Cameron even last beyond this week? If he did, it was maybe like another week. But, I mean, what a TV taping this is. I mean, you get three guys who were, I don't know if I say newsletter darlings per se, but Mm -hmm. guys that fans wanted to see in American promotions all debut and basically all are done with the company in a matter of a week or two. Hmm. Good God. Okay, looking at cage match at least, um, Larry Cameron does the subs for... So yeah, he hasn't even been on TV yet when he's subbing for Ron Simmons. Well, he's just a big, a big black man, so, you know. Who else would... Well, he's managed by Teddy Long as well, but yes, who else would replace Ron Simmons? And then... Oh, we had Buddy Landau replace Ron Simmons, uh, you know, months earlier, reuniting the Butchery Buddy Landell tag team. Well, that's fantastic. But we talked about that on the show before. There, he only had one TV match, and it's at this Gainesville taping where he beats Ray Hammer. Yes, the legendary Ray Hammer. Doesn't yeah. he also drop that poor guy on his head too? <laughs> uh, he dropped the hammer. Yes, he did. But, it does yeah. not air on Worldwide until January 12th. Yeah. Well, they were stacking tapings at this time, too. So. All right, the Renegade Warriors were back at the tapings, although nobody has a clue as to why. Aww. <laughs> I, I like the Youngbloods. They were going to run a scientific match between, between Terry Taylor and Sam Houston, whose debut on TV, but Sam Houston wouldn't do the job, so it was scrapped. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he went shot the Jerry Taylor. Yeah, maybe he maybe he knew Bix. <laughs> okay, but he doesn't drop the guy on his head. He pan he does like the DDP pancake. Because I remember someone's tapeless describing him as like Tiger Driver ninety wanting him, but no, it's not like that. Um, <sighs> Sam Houston refused to do a job to Terry Taylor. And those guys have worked together for for UWF. I mean, it's not like they didn't know each other, but... Yeah, which... By the way, that reminds me. You know, with... Uh, uh, 
unless there's something that's not known about like the Tammy stuff and just all that. Now that that reminds me that it's like it is kind of amazing that Sam Houston never killed anyone. <sighs> I mean, like I don't know if it's true that he really set the state record for DUIs or whatever the story was, but like <sighs> Jesus. I don't know. The whole it just it it just came to mind because that whole thing's been on my mind just because of how eh, how much everyone's been talking about it and just how just distressing and intertwined with so much stuff it is. But anyway, all right. Uh, Man, watch had this. Barry Wyndham took control of the dress room at the taping as he was calling the finishes, among other duties. This has touched off a lot of speculation among the troops. So is this the only blurb in any of the newsletters, not just in our week, but period, that yes. indicates that Barry was booking? Y yes. And this was buried. I, I mean, I, I was doing extensive reading, and it was just like buried in uh, some in another part of the article. Oh, it wasn't in Matt watching it even. It, it, was, it was just in... You know how sometimes Wade would have stuff like wait Wade or Steve? No, Steve. I'm just saying. You yeah. know how Wade would have stuff in the middle of paragraphs. It's like Steve. Steve was doing the same thing here. It's like, why are why are you burying this newsworthy thing in the middle of this and, and not treating it as newsworthy? Exactly. But this is it. So if Barry, I mean Barry's doing this, then there's your sign right there. Yes. That Dusty's in there so what they're doing i mean they're they're working these guys they're working the sheets not exactly yeah they are i mean he's clearly dusty's emissary yes but they're working the sheets though as far as this whole thing of who's you know who's gonna be the booker. oh as far as that i thought you meant as far as barry yeah yeah, yeah. no yeah. they're working the sheets so who's gonna be the booker yes it's gonna be dusty yes so here we go. Here we finally found something contemporaneous that confirms the, what Barry said later. Yes, they they taped television the next night at Center Stage in Atlanta for eight hundred fans. This was said to be the best TV taping in several months. Well, that's nice. Thank you, Barry Wyndham, for the January fifth TBS show. <laughs> Brian Pillman. Yeah, it's Potter. a. It, 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 oh, new. I, I wonder who said that this new Booker's TV taping was the best taping in months. <laughs> I mean, it's possible it was true, but... Well, this is Dave, so... Yeah. Uh, for the January 5th TBS show, Brian Pillman... Oh, you mean Dave, who has talked about going out to dinner with Barry Windham? Yeah, but this is... This is also... It's also post-Oli, and maybe Dave doesn't know what's going on. I don't know. Again, mm -hmm. they're being worked. Brian Pillman and Red Rogers, an excellent match. Terry Taylor did an interview saying that he, not Tom Zink, should have gotten the TV title shot since he was on the road to beating Arn Anderson when Zink snuck in. Yes, this is the beginning of that feud, the uh, four-way TV title feud that would dominate WCW television for the With next those three and uh, Bobby Eaton. Yes. Uh, minutes are worked and look terrible. They start the Paulie Missy Hyatt feud, which will lead to an arm wrestling match at the Clash. Terry challenged Arn to a match to prove he could have beaten him for the title, like Zink did, but Arn pinned Taylor with his feet on the ropes in a good match. Missy slapped Paulie Hard during the show close. January 12th has a challenge by Wyndham and Anderson to the Youngbloods. 
During the Zink interview, both Taylor and Eaton come out and claim to be the number contender for Zink's title. It winds up with Taylor challenging Eaton to see who gets the title shot to clash. But the match goes about seven minutes to a time limit draw. It was disappointing. Sid, Penn, Norman, and Conan worked and looked real good. You know, like, I used to think back as, like, to a kid as, like, heel with their feet on the ropes as being, like, a common finish. But when you really think about, like, and it's not, wasn't uncommon, but, like, as far as it being, like, common, common, it's actually just this era of WCW <laughs> where it's happening, yeah. like, all the time and all of the heels are doing it. Yeah. Talk of center stage, this is Steve, was that both Dusty Rose and Terry Funk were coming, to, coming in the run WCW in January. But the word from Jack Petra's office is still that no one has been hired. A.K.A. the word from Jack Petra. And basically what that means is Dusty Dusty would be in charge of the creative, Terry Funk would be in charge of the television. So why doesn't Terry come in? Was his horse sick? WCW officials, back to Steve, were to have met with Terry in, in Orlando on December the 9th, where Funk has been doing film work. Some insiders say the checkbook will be out for the USWA champion. Insiders and, meaning Joe Pettisino and Bonnie Blackstone. And the torch came through saying there are rumors going around that Funk may be talking to playing the Black Scorpion and not Ric Flair is rumored. Hmm. I mean, if at that point you're just going with the idea that none of the hints were going to mean anything, yes, that would have been better. Mm-hmm. So. But a Dusty Rose Terry Funk led WCW would have been something. <laughs> yes. So that's interesting. Uh, Sting is doing a TV movie called Super Force this week. Did, does this happen? I think we talked about it. Uh, oh, it was a show. Or, well, there's a TV movie and it turns into a TV show. Yeah, Super Force. Uh, we talked about this before. We've played clips from this before. Oh, it takes place in 2020. Okay. Just to tell you some people that's in it. Um... G. Gordon Liddy, not the message board poster. Lamar from Revenge of the Nerds is in it. Um, Ginger Lynn's in it. The porn star. A bunch of people that you would say, oh, I know them by their face. But, yeah. Amazing. That's on the TV series, not the movie. It's A former astronaut turned cop who uses a highly advanced powered exoskeleton motorcycle to fight crime in the city of Metroplex during the future year of 2020. Yeah, if, if Sting was in this film, which I think he actually was, he's not credited. So Yeah, I noticed that. So it's bootleg Robocop. Yeah, pretty much. In, in the first version of this story we'll have on this show... WCW pulled their TV off Channel 69 Atlanta because Joe Pettisino's fiance Bonnie Blackstone, they're due to be married in two weeks, handles the block. So now WCW has no syndication in Atlanta. Since Atlanta's their best drawing, and really only a good drawing city, except possibly Jacksonville, Dave will try not to mess with the formula. Well, let's go to Matt Watch. A Turner exec told a Channel 69 WVEU exec that WCW felt the program created a conflict of interest with host Bonnie Blackstone's fiance Joe Pettisino's GWF. But it doesn't exist yet. And they're not married yet. <laughs> if you read newsletters at the time, the GWF it definitely exists. We'll get into that later. Well, yes. I mean, that's the thing. 
I mean, they, they are they have people firmly believing that this thing is you know about to really get blasting. I mean, they're doing that big TV taping at the Bron- at Bronco Bowl within the month, Bix. That's still Which being becomes a sportatorium taping, yes. But, but that's still being talked about. So, but again, WCW is not the only promotion to leave uh, Channel sixty nine. We'll have more on that later, and they will return. So later on, on the New York show this weekend, the WPIX show, they had Gary Michael Pettiman announced that the Nasty Boys have been run out of the NWA by the Steiners, and the Steiners face the Master Blasters at the Meadowlands. So what happens next? The very next match on TV was the Nasty Boys winning the squash match. Where Jim Ross was saying he, how he doesn't even expect them to show up for their match at the Meadowlands and pretty much burying them. <laughs> WC, everybody. <laughs> oh, we're going to have a big one coming up right here. And uh, this this episode of World Championship Wrestling that aired on our we- in our week on the 8th is not on YouTube. Hmm. And it's a shame because this happened. On World Championship Wrestling, they ran one segment with the Terry Taylor Michael Wall Street angle, which is pretty good, twice in a row. Steve Beverly. I have no idea why the Terry Taylor Joe Kazana match and Michael Wall Street's angle was repeated. It is inconceivable that the show could have been edited that way, and it strikes me as a control room error. WC, everybody. Yes. So what they did, they played the match and angle, went to commercial, and came back and played the match and angle all over again. They played everything between the commercials twice. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you can't really tell that from the way Dave wrote it, because he means the whole segment, but he said segment, but the way people use segment not, might be used differently from someone in the business. So and he said twice in a row, which is what it is. I mean, it was yeah. aired twice in a row. Yes, you actually need to read both blurbs to understand what happened. I mean, insane. I mean, we had, you know, numerous instances throughout the company's existence of shows being shown out of, not, uh, excuse me, segments being out of order. In this era? Yeah. Like a a month or two earlier. What was that? It was something, oh, fuck, Cornette's there. It was something, it was taped at Cobb County Civic Center. They aired it. They aired the deal. I forget. I can't remember if it was a match. I think it was. A, it was definitely a match involved and a promo. They aired it, and they talked about the stuff that was going to happen, that already happened, and then they that, that which hadn't aired yet, and then they aired the stuff that Cornette talked about in this promo, like thirty minutes after the Cornette promo, on the first time airing. And this stuff never happens anywhere else. No. Ever. Ever. No. It just doesn't. Yeah. It's fucking insane. How this promotion lasts as long as they did. God almighty. All right. uh, Dave thought the Ric Flair limo video was pretty good, but he can't figure the purpose. Makes Ric Flair babyface, which isn't what they want to do. Dave thought Flair was originally supposed to be injured and be off these all the weeks. In fact, he was, and the parking lot attack was to be the reason, but they decided after filming and airing the thing not to keep him off. It was so disorganized watching it, and there was a lead to a great Muda clip, which never appeared. W said everybody. So, let's watch this, shall we? Uh, Teddy Long 
had a loss, or was it Butch Reed that lost the match? Where it was Taylor Butch Long- Reed, Ric Flair at the Clash. Yeah. So Teddy Long had to be Ric Flair's chauffeur for the day. Let's watch how uh, this turned out, shall we? It's a beautiful day in hot Atlanta, Georgia, the home of the Omni Hotel, CNN, the Atlanta Hawks, the Atlanta Braves, the infamous Ted Turner, and today, the home of yours truly, Ric Flair. Now, the bottom line is... Why do I feel like he's about to get attacked by DDP and Max Muscle? <laughs> it's outside the athletic club, too. You know, I'm the athletic club. Wasn't it the same side of the building where they shot that angle, though? Yep. Well, you're about to see a whole big shot of that coming. Yeah. Yes. Several weeks ago, one Mr. Teddy Long took it upon himself to take a day out of my life, look at my custom-made toys, try to jump on Ric Flair. Today, as a result of a wager won by me and Arn Anderson, Mr. Theodore Long, come on down here, Teddy. It's going to have the pleasure, Jerry, by the way, you're excused for the day, is going to have the pleasure of driving me around in my toy all day long. Come on down here, Teddy. Say hi to the camera crew, to the folks. Jerry, like I said, brother, I'll get you with 100 a minute. You got the day off. My friend, let's start like this. Here we go. Come on, Teddy. What's good for the goose today? Hey, hey, hey. Here's the The contract, pal. You drive this. For the day, you drive an inch more around. Open the door. Woo! Well, right left. Big cities. <laughs> Pretty ladies. Here we are, Mr. Flair. That's it, big man. Thank you very it's much. It's, it's an order bridge right there. God, this 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 is such a WCW 1990 level of racism. And Flair's not in a normal limo. He's in like a Rolls limo here, too. <laughs> and also, just to make matters worse, like, Teddy's chauffeur outfit is basically like what he would be wearing if Paula Dean wanted him to work as a waiter. He's wearing a Teddy Long outfit. But, but it's that he has the tails on the jacket and everything, though. But he's, but he's wearing the, the do-rag under the hat, too. <laughs> well, that's 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 the best part of the segment. Yeah. But... <sighs> Teddy, don't forget the first stop along the way is to pick up Double A. You'll be waiting in the lobby. There are modern renaissance. Oh, wait, we have a limo, and the manager of Doom is involved. I wonder what's going to (laughs) happen. They're definitely not going to repeat an angle from the year earlier, right? That would be stupid. It's not the same. It's not the same. Because we never saw a camera inside the limo where Scott Steiner was attacked by Kevin Sullivan and Doom. And like I said, there is some pretty marked differences here. Okay. Let's continue. Come on, Teddy, how's it feel? You told the whole world you're going to be driving around this car? <laughs> well, you are. Woo! You know what? Two Big cameras surprise, in this Teddy. limo. Three o'clock. At three o'clock, I got Janet Jackson coming in. She'll be right next to the nature boy himself. Hey, pal. Hey, Theo. I need a Coca-Cola. Why don't you pull it right over the right right here? Okay. Okay, champ. You know what's amazing about this? Think of all the TV shows with actual budgets and stuff that would never do this. And it, here these got, here is our with Teddy Long actually driving a car on an open road. <laughs> yeah. Like, they're, they're not just sitting there with someone shining a light as they shake the car. No, the, he is actually driving the car. Mm-hmm. With no hands, because oh. he was clapping his hands. Yeah. Hey! 
Hey, Theodore, thanks for the Coke, pal. It tastes real good. Now let's go to the airport. And Flair's well, going to die, Coke. I need to make a note to take make a drop of that. <laughs> hey, Theodore, thanks for the Coke, pal. <laughs> That's definitely not a mushroom-infused uh, woo energy drink right there. That's a Diet Coke. Well, it tastes real good. Now let's go to the airport. Hey, brother, what are you doing? There's something wrong with the car. There's nothing wrong with the car. Just keep going. There's something Long. Wrong with the car. Don't mess with my property, pal. Let's keep going to the airport. The he doesn't own the limo. Long, I'm not going to tell you again. I've got to pull over and check the car. You're checking nothing. This is my car. You're working for me. We're picking up double A. Long, where are you going? Get back on the freeway right now. You're checking nothing. Now turn this car around. You're checking nothing out, Long. You're checking nothing up. Get out right, of here. Get it. Hey, get it. Take him out. Take him out. Hey, hey, give me that camera. Give me that camera. I want to film this. Give me that camera. Give me that camera. that it wasn't actually Doom who attacked, technically. No. It was a bunch of white dudes. <laughs> yeah. Rick Blair walked up to me once. Oh, that auto-played. Well, you might want to play it anyway, just to be, just to have the, uh... Oh, oh yeah, that probably, we probably should, shouldn't we? Yeah. It, it is someone's YouTube uh, short of Teddy Long's uh, Kayfabe Commentaries interview where he talks about Rick calling him the N-word. One time he asked me, he said, nigga, you like working here? And I didn't know what the deal was. And he said there was some, this was Knoxville, Tennessee. He said there were some girls at the back door and they were trying to get in. And they told him that I said that they could come in. I didn't know, I don't know who these girls are. I'm going to tell somebody to get in. I don't know who these girls are. But I mean, I think it was just a way to pick at me. And I remember Kevin Sullivan and Eddie Gilbert telling me, you know, that when they went to him to present the manager deal, you know, me being a manager, that he hated it. He had, he didn't want Rick no, it. Yeah, he hated it. He didn't want no part of it. So, uh... Oh, this music that someone added for the TikTok this was taken from is terrible. <laughs> yeah, it's on a TikTok, yes. Oh, and of course, we, we have your auto-generated TikTok subtitles. We have Jim H-E-A-R-D. <laughs> Jim Heard. Jim Hurd told me one time, right to my face, I was Teddy, he said, I can just be honest with you, Rick Flair doesn't like you. So, why, I don't know. I think you just said why. <laughs> uh. Oh, man. 
I, I'm kind of curious to see the Scott Steiner thing. Well, it's a camera. It's just Scott Steiner. It's Robin Green luring Scott Steiner to the limo, saying that, you know, just come on. We're going to go meet Rick, blah, blah, blah. Scott gets in there. No cameras. Uh, gets his ass whipped. They throw him out. Uh, Kevin Sullivan gets out of the limo. You see his boots. And you know it's him. And okay. uh, he kicks Scott, leaves Scott there. I mean, that's basically what it is. They ne- you never see Doom at all. Okay. But they still do the deal with the camera on the ground. And... That's, yeah, yeah, that's the same. I mean, it's still an angle with Doom, their manager, and a limo and a camera on the ground, you know? Yeah, it, 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 I, I get what you're saying. It's still weirdly similar. Yeah. But, well, I'm sure nothing else racist happened in WCW other than this segment. <laughs> At least this month. Yeah. Well. <laughs> All right. So uh, we continue. Those Dick the Bruiser reviews should have never aired. None of the few people, very, very few people outside of Chicago and St. Louis and Indianapolis ever remember him. But even those that do don't want to see him like that. Okay. I'm curious. There's one on. It's not from our week. It's from just. But there's one on YouTube and. It's short, so I'm curious how bad this is. Okay? Yeah. I'll get it. Oh, wait. I started playing in the middle. Because remember, he's the special referee for uh, Starcade Main Event. Take the bruiser. I will be in the ring. I don't wear rubber gloves because I'm full, so afraid of blood. I don't wear a big rubber cap because I'm afraid I'll get hit. I'm tough and I can beat probably all four of the wrestlers in there together. So I'm going to be at the face. Wait, was he originally supposed to referee the street fight or does he just not know what he's talking about? I don't think he just doesn't know what he's talking about. Review Starcade. I'm going to be there for my buddy Pat O'Connor. I am going to beat anybody in the head that tries to not obey the rules. Dick the Bruiser, Starcade, pay per view. Okay. Oof. Yeah, that's not good. No. Main event drew a healthy 3.1 rating on December the 9th. While well, the regular WCW showed it on the 8th to the 2.9, Power on a 1.5. Power doesn't appear to be capable of drawing anything more than fringe numbers in early AM slot, but other shows are doing better on cable than the Titan shows nearly every week of late. Well, at this point, Power Hour is only Saturdays at 9 a.m., right? Uh, it's either 9 or 10, right? Yes, it's in the morning. I think it's 9, because I think, uh, blah, blah, blah. I think Pro Wrestling New York on PIX was 10 or 11. Um, because yeah, previously until what the spring, summer, Power Hour was Friday nights at ten with a Saturday at seven replay, seven a.m. replay. WCW has alleviated the problems over the Pat O'Connor name for the tournament. Julie O'Connor and family were threatened to pick up the show and complained to me about using Pat's name because Sam Mushin was going to give out the trophy. So as a compromise, Mushin won't be giving out the trophy, and Julie O'Connor is happy with everything. Oh, so the issue wasn't that they didn't have permission. The issue was that... Sam Mushton was involved. And they had heat over what exactly? The whole... Mushnick split, basically. Oh, that uh, Sam kind of secretly supporting Matizek. Yes. Yes. Okay. 
The contract figure listed for the Steiners, $300,000 each per year, was way high. In fact, Steiners haven't signed a new deal. Current deal runs out in February, and the offer was not for $300,000 a year. Well, there's that. Uh, Matt Watson, the Royal Family has been reportedly pitched a new deal from W7 to Star K, which shows that WCW is not sitting still. You can expect many more WCW regulars to be locked into deals instead of nightly guarantees for many of the mid-level stars in recent months. The loss of the Nasty Boys to WF exposed the vulnerability of the non-contracted players and the perceived challenge underneath from the GWF. That would probably drive up the price in terms of the performers. Yeah, the Nasty Boys leaving like they did... We talked about this before on the show. Well, that's the problem. Well, terrible th- look. But it's that's on WCW for giving a of push course. to guys that they didn't have under contract. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Like once you actually were going to put them in a program and a pay per view match, no, put them in a sign them to something. Absolutely. But the thing is, is that I mean, look what Steve's also mentioning here: the GWS will have money. million. Yes. Which, as we know now, he saw saw Olu Oliemi's initial presentation. He saw the alleged documentation of the $25 billion. Mm -hmm. So he's sure of all this. uh, That's what I said. GWF is a thing, Vix. I mean, it it is a thing at this time in everybody's mind because just what Joe Pettacito thinks it's going to be. And it's 1990, so if if someone says that there is a cop, I forget, was there supposed to be a, a Nigerian company under the name of Kongi Sports, or was that just supposed to be the name of the American company? It's the name of the American company, but that's also the name of the other thing. Kongi is another thing, too, so... Oh, that, no, that's what it was, was that there was supposed to be a separate Kongi, and that they were increasing what or diversifying their investments... And that included the new Kongi Sports and Entertainment. Yes. So, yeah, they say there's a Kongi in Nigeria. Who are we to say there's not? It's 1990. Can't look that shit up. Yeah. At least not as easily. Buddy Landau's out of action with a broken eardrum. Should be back after Christmas break. That's not good. Yeah. The word is that Larry Zabisco will be brought in to color with Tony Schiavone on the WGN show in Chicago, but they won't be wrestling for now. And that's basically true. Nobody seems to think El Gigante will return from Argentina. He went home for the holidays. Although if he does, he's booked Christmas week shows, so if he doesn't make those shots, we can assume he's history. And he comes back for a while. His return is Christmas with him and Luger against uh, Big Cat and Mercy Madman at the Omni. Uh, the next family feud seven be, would be some heels. They believe they'll use Tony Schiavone. He's not a heel. Dutch Mantel, Master Blaster, Steel, Kevin Sullivan, somebody else. Good job of getting your biggest drawing cards over to a mainstream audience. Yeah, but we got coffee out of this, though. We got entertaining television, but it is weird who they send to family feud outside of this, the one that, like, the one all-star team of, like, who was it? Sting, Luger, Steiners, and who was the fifth one on that one? Pillman. Yeah. What if they would have, I mean, imagine sending Ric Flair. You don't think Flair would have been good on that on that show? Also, why is Tony there when isn't the idea with putting Dutch there is that he is your heel announcer? <sighs> I guess I need somebody there to, uh, 
to give correct answers. I don't know. Okay. But anyway. Uh, Jim Hurd apparently had a meeting with Terry Funk over the weekend, which we talked about earlier. Yeah. Uh, WCW was trying to make deals with Top Def State Williams, Terry Gordy, and Danny Spivey between their All Japan tours. Well, a lot of them did. Yeah. Spivey, <laughs> briefly. Yeah. Minotaur debuts on the house show at Crystal Night in the Om, then he's booked everywhere against the Juicer, whose last booking is January the 3rd. So he's booked everywhere for a week against the Juicer. Pretty much. Harley Race got injured at St. Joseph when J- Junkyard Dog fell on him and broke his rotator cuff in his shoulder. Oops. Well, at least he was close to home. Yeah, but oof, that's a terrible way to get hurt. Yeah. And uh, we close with this from Matt Watch. Mike Rotunda's been around wrestling for 10 years, but Michael Wall Street's only taken three weeks to make the pages of USA Today and their money section. The National Daily profiled the Wall Street character on page one of this section on December the 10th. Rotunda was likened to Michael Douglas's role as Gordon Gecko in the film Wall Street and described his stock market crash finisher, saying that one moment he's as high as he can be, then he comes crashing down just like the real stock market crash. And we are not going to read any of this because all of the quotes and stuff are just taken for promos. There's nothing. Yeah, it's just, just basically talking about the character and the vignettes, yes. Yeah, it's just a blurb. There's no interview with Mike Rotunda. No. Or Miss Alexandria York. No. But, uh, I mean, you got somebody in WCW and USA Today, so. That's something. There is that. Yeah. Well, that wouldn't happen again for 10 years and <laughs> putting the title on uh, David Arquette. Which, by the way, it's just because it comes up. I think most people understand that this has been debunked. David Arquette as the champion was not on the cover of USA Today. No. It was in USA Today. Yes. Just like Michael Wall Street was not on the cover of USA Today. No. Well, since this is 1990, international is an all-encompassing segment. And we go to the land of the rising sun first, All Japan Pro Wrestling, where they finish their annual tag tournament on uh, December 7th. For a sellout crowd of 15,600 at Budokan Hall in Tokyo. Third largest crowd behind Jumbo and Tenru's Bachelor June 5th, 89. And the combined show in New Japan WF this past April in the history of the office. Okay, wait, wait, wait. so when does a Budokan sellout turn into 16,300? Um, I guess it's all semantics. I mean, they do add some extra seats in later years, so... No. So what is it, just a different floor seating configuration? Yes. yes. But it is, it, there was a legit change. They, did just, they didn't just work a new number. That was my, That's basically my question. Yeah. Okay. As expected, Dr. Def Terry Gordy won the tournament and also vacated the PWF World Tag Titles and International Tag Titles, beating, and also de-vacated, not vacating, uh, beating uh, Stan Hansen Dance Five in the finals. And boy, does that match fucking suck. <sighs> it's not what you would hope it would have been, because this is a pretty great tournament. Yeah, and that match is just... <sighs> it's got head issues. The way everything wound up working out was probably isn't the way it was originally planned, since Mr. Amasawa missed a few scheduled matches with a knee injury, that his team probably would have won, and Giant Baba broke his leg, so he and Andre the Giant forfeited some matches they would have won as well, is that the tournament came down to these two teams with nobody else's contention on the final night. Hanson Spivey had 20 points, Doc and Gordy had 19, so if the match went to a draw, then Hanson Spivey would have won the tournament. And the surprise finish, after doing the ultimate time limit draw tease, with a pinfall coming at 29.59 of a 30-minute time limit match. 
Doc Stampede and Hanson. First time Hanson put over Doc in Japan for the victory. That was a cool finish. It was, but I mean the Both problem the with sucked. The problem is they're basically the same team and they can't do all of their cool shit with each other the way they could with other opponents. Yeah, but the finish run was pretty great. But yeah, I remember had, had you thinking. I first saw this when I got the, you know, Rebel Tag League 89 to 91 tape. And, you know, you have that amazing 89 finals of, uh, you know, Jumbo and Yatsu against Tenru and Hansen. Yeah, great 91 finals with Doc and Gordy against Masao and Kawada. Sandwiched in the middle, you have this. But understanding now that it wasn't what was planned, I can cut them a little bit of slack. So I guess... I guess it would have been Masawa and Kawada instead of which team? Probably Hanson and Spivey. Yeah. Because Spivey is not getting that level of push, really. Even as Hanson's partner. So, I would think I would think Doc and Gordy would be the other team. And maybe also that's why they did Doc and Gordy against Masawa and Kawada the following year? That was the final, but the best match on the card was the semi-main event. Mr. Masanto Shakawada beat Jumbo Shrewd and Kiritawi in 23 minutes, and Kawada pins out with a powerbomb. Tremendous match. Dory and Terry Funk beat Abdul the Butcher Kamala, too. Land of the Giants, Butch Masters and Nitron defeat Ricky Santana and Doug Furness. Crawford, I'm guessing, is hurt if he's not on the tour ender. Well, he's on the whole tour. Oh, he was. He, there was no KM Express in this tournament? Nope. Santana and Furness. So was he hurt, or. It's possible. Uh, Kenakabashi Shiyoshikuchi teamed up to beat uh, the British Bruisers, Dynamite Kid and Johnny Smith. Rush Kamura and Mighty Inoue beat Matoshi Okuma and Haruka Egan. Dick Slater and Joel Deaton beat Masafuchi and Asamu Nishi. And Mitsumoto beat Yoshinari Agawa. Now, one of the biggest pops of the show was when they played Baba's voice over the PA system, which was taped from the hospital, where he thanked the fans for their support during the past year, and the fans chanted his name afterwards. Oh, that's nice. Now, here's the final standings. Gordy and Doc at one, 21 points. Hanson Spivey second with 20. The Funks and tied with uh, Jumbo and Tyway for third with 17 apiece. Masan Kawada had 16 and fifth. You know, that would have been higher. Baba and Andre was sixth and with 14 points. You know, that would have been higher. Abby and Kamala with 12 at seventh. Johnny Ace and Kitakabashi eighth with eight. British Bruisers ninth with six. Tied with Land of the Giants, who had six. Slater and Deaton had four. They were 11th. Santana and Furness had two. And they were tied for 12th with Russia and Mighty Inouye. And this would be two points for a win, one for a draw, zero for a loss, right? Correct, yes. So, yeah, not as good as 89, but still an interesting tag league. With the Land of the Giants, Andre and Baba. A lot of interesting matches. I forget. Had Andre and had had the Andre and Baba thing happened yet until this tour is this tour the beginning of it? This was the beginning of it. Yeah, so it's a big deal. Because Baba had a mystery partner, kind of sort of. I think of what it was, and then it was announced it's going to be Andre. Most people don't expect Nasty Boys to work here scheduled in January, but last word is that it was still a possibility. Let me tell you, it wasn't. Well, I mean, they're in WWF. They're in WWF. They ain't going to All Japan. Yes, that's just the way it was. 
the Blackhearts, Tom Nash and Dave Heath from Florida, they made a great impression in match in Miami a few weeks back and may get a surprise a decent push from Montreal in February. The Japanese felt they had potential with their work to be a Japanese version of the Steiners because all their hot double-team moves. You mean the all-Japan version of Steiners? Because they're not Japanese, Dave! Well, but we don't know anything about the... St- he means the Steiners in Japan, but yes. Because the Steiners haven't the Steiners. been to Japan yet. No, the Japanese version of the... Well, also, it's weird that he's writing that when this next item is in the same issue. Doug furnishes the Frank Steiner every night in Japan, so when Scott Steiner does Tokyo Dome, it won't be his unique move. Why don't you just say the Can-Ams are the Steiners in Japan? But also, wait, if we know the Steiners are going to be working in Japan now, why are we even... I, I don't understand. Johnny Ace missed the last two nights of the tour when he was called home suddenly because his mother passed away. As most of you know, Ace's older brother is Royal Animal, which is why Animal missed lots of WF matches over the weekend. So there's that. The entire Japanese crew and employees are now in Hawaii on a two-week vacation. Bob has given the company to celebrate how successful the past year was. Yeah, considering how the, you know, what all happened that year, I mean... It did become a major success. Uh, this was so the beginning of the Budokan sellout streak. Well, it wasn't well, just Budokan, it was Tokyo, period, right? Well, yeah, it's, not, it's, not that as, it's not that as much as all the shit that happened with everybody leaving. Oh, that they were able to turn that into a positive, and yeah. Yeah. Bob has made the return to the road early next spring, but not wrestled for eight or nine months after suffering his broken leg on November 30th, when he took a bump over the top rope. Although Bob will turn 53 in January, he pretty much has to wrestle for the limited amount of exercise that controls his diabetes problem. Although there were apparently no problems with Bob gone during the last week of the tournament, Bob was like a father to younger wrestlers and giving them advice and taking care of problems on the road. It appears that Jumbo Sharuda is going to be that kind of team leader now. It's something that, that Bob and Anoki pretty much had the same problems, but Anoki would have never put himself in the position that Baba was in where Baba was wrestling still, but in taking himself down the card, that one, yeah. Anoki was never going to do that shit. Never. Could you imagine well, Anoki, could you imagine Anoki were doing like a mid card uh, feud with, uh, with the blonde outlaws? <laughs> who would be Anoki's rusher? <laughs> uh, Kita. Not not uh, Manasuke Ueda, you don't think? Oh, no, he's not wrestling at this point in time, full-time. Okay. Yeah. Speaking of New Japan, New Japan's trying to make a separate deal with Hulk Hogan and keep SWS from using him. Good luck with that. <laughs> and Tony has gone to the mainstream press because the show he did on the separate third in Baghdad, Iraq, turned out to be a major success. And he was successful in freeing the, free, the remaining Japanese hostages. So he's turning into a major political hero. He's been on Japan's version of Meet the Press type shows, but does pro wrestling interviews, painting the government as heels, and he's the face. And he's actually working because the personal, his personal popularity is bigger than during his wrestling days. At the Tokyo show, the crowd went nuts when he came out and gave a speech. Oh, yeah, they play that shit on television. You know, when I, when I first saw him, I was like, where's this show at? Because it didn't like any type of Japanese show. And I was like, oh, shit, that's in fucking Iraq. <laughs> And yes, they were making Anoki like uh, the Messiah on the on those clips and stuff. So yeah, he knew how to, he knew how to work them. He knew how to work that media. Scott Norton's in getting a super push. The company believes that since Vader's been around for three years and Bigelow even longer, 
They need to create an unstoppable foreign giant, so they're going to have to give Gordon and Tony Hallmay, both of whom are poor workers, the chance. Norton's match is a totally planned out move for move ahead and limited to three minutes, but he's getting over nearly like the Road Warriors did here five years ago. When the Warriors first got over in Japan, they weren't good workers, but their bouts kept two or three minutes, and they moved fast and destroyed everyone and were huge draws. Norton's early stuff's like that, but, I mean, they give him more room as time went on in 91, and he started having longer matches and started becoming a much better worker. Yeah, home uh, well, outside of different style fight context was not good. He had good theme music. And he was a Nazi. And he had a great look in this era. He did. He came in all black leather with sunglasses. He looked like a bad motherfucker. And he was a tough dude, but yeah. Yeah, and what... How often was he wearing weird Nazi t-shirts that no one noticed until years later? Well, he wasn't wearing t-shirts in New Japan. Where's that... Wait, where is that... Oh, is it from Rings? Is that where that screenshot's from? I mean, the one where he... Shirt- yeah, he's not wearing shirts in New Japan. He's wearing the he's wearing this black leather coat and no shirt up under it. You know, but you know the screenshot I'm talking about, right? Where he's somewhere, and I forget who he's in the picture with, but it, but he's wearing a T-shirt that says "Equal Equal Rights for American White." <laughs> yeah, yeah. He definitely was a, a racist, that's for sure. I mean, no, he was an outright Nazi. We can say it. Yeah, yeah, he was. He, Nazi, he had Nazi tattoos. He was the member. He was a member of it, like an outright Nazi political party. He was a Nazi. Yeah, business is really booming right now to the point they're drawing huge gates with what on paper aren't even interesting cards. But Ricky Choshi has established the idea that on any given day, anyone can win, and it's a tag team title match on December 13th at Tokyo Sumo Hall with Hiroshi Hase and Kensuke Saki defending against Shiro Koshinaka, great worker, but a mid-card guy, and Takuya Kazuka, generally open match guy, still sold out the 11,000-seat hall, with tickets ranging from 25 to 75 bucks. Not only that, the January Courts Tokyo sold out more than a month in advance without even a lineup being announced. Oh, they're hot. They're red hot here. Yes. And this is before, this is before, you know, some of the heavy pushing of the of the, the younger guys. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's the thing about it, too. At the TV team on December 7th in Ikawacho, before South 2180, we had Norton, Bad News, and Brad Rangans. That's a team. Meeting a Choshu Hansen Sasaki with Norton Penn Hansen with a lariat. During the match, Norton stole almost nothing, even Hasan Saki's hot double-team moves. That is definitely a trios match you don't want to bump into in a dark alley. Hot double-team moves. Yeah. Also, Tetsumi Fujinami Shiro Koshinaka beat Masahiro and Kunya Kobayashi when Koshinaka beat Kobayashi. Muno and Shono beat uh, Timur Zarazov and Andrei Zulazev of the Soviet Union. This is about towards the end of that whole deal. Kyun Kamura over Ray Apollo... Tash Toshigoto, Norinaga, Hiroseido, Blonde Outlaws, beat Jushin Riger, Kantaro Hoshino, and Takuya Super Strong Machine over Masukarisu, Osama Kido over Osama Matsuda, and Black Cat over Michiyoshi Ohara. Nagoya Rainbow Hall on the 11th drew 10,550, with Choshu and Kido and Kobayashi beating Fujinami, Koshinaka, and Izuka. Hase and Sasaki kept the tag titles beating Goto and Machine. Mudo over Bam Bam Bigelow. Scott Norton over Masaido. 
shown over Doc Dusty wins by disqualification. Yes, this is the time when Doc is working both New Japan and New Japan. Uh, Ken Kamara. I, I mean, I didn't realize he was working both during this tour, though. They did that quite a bit when they were on tour concurrently. No, but I mean during this tag league. I mean, yeah. Well, the tag league's over with by now. During the tag league tour, you know what I mean. It, it ended four days earlier. Okay. Um, King over bad news. Brad Rangins, Ray Apollo, over Zulazev and Zarazal. Liger and Anima Hamaguchi over Masashi Oyagi and Masukarisu. And Norinaga here saved over Osama Matsuda and Katoro Hoshino. And then the big Sumo Hall show that sold out with Hasan Saki keeping the tag titles over Kushinaka and Izuka in 2111. Choshu and Kido beat Fujinami and Kimura when Kido beat Fujinami in a major surprise. Two reasons. They're trying to show anyone in the company is capable of beating anyone at any time. And also, for some reason, they want to give Kido a push. Well, he's he's the most interesting man in New Japan. At the, you know, mm. and, impeccable hair. Mudo and Chono beat Bad News and Bigelow. Norton over Goto. Demolition Axe pin Masaido. Edie was a big disappointment as far as his working because fans remember him from the early 80s as the man superstar and one of the best workers in the world at that point. Then you have Machine, Hirosato and Hanaga over Liger, Hamaguchi, and Hoshino. Brad Rangins and Dr. Death over Zarazov and Zulazev. Rumigo and Oyagi over Kobayashi Matsuda and Kariso over Apollo. Yeah, why did he decide to work his demolition axe here? Uh, I guess because he had been in Japan as demolition. That he th- I guess he thought that that would be the, the best gimmick for, you know, trying to get public attention. I don't know. Hmm. And he works three. He actually works three tours as Demolition Axe. Yeah, although he's not working the full tour here. This is his only date on this tour. Yeah, this is set up. You know, the future tour, basically. Yeah. So then he works as a singles on uh, the Super February tour, and then he comes back in June for Summer Struggle. Where he teams with who Cage Match has listed as Canadian Giant, and it is Canadian Giant, but here he is Demolition Hook. Yes. All so right, uh, the uh, the first the first new member of Demolition outside of the WWE. If Myra doesn't resummon NWA, New Japan's interested in bringing him in as a regular or as a tag partner with Brad Rangins had a few with the Soviets. And he comes in, but it's as Michael Wall Street through WCW, right? <laughs> Not this time. Or had he already been there? Well, no, no, wait, he just became Michael Wall Street. When is the tour he works as Michael Wall Street? Um, I thought that was in 90, but he just got the gimmick. I'm looking. 91. Okay. When it's in, in March. And he works as Mike Rotunda. When does he finish up in WCW? Uh, right before that tour. His last match is January 20th. I'm pretty. I mean, this could be a mistake on Kajax because I'm pretty sure he works there as Michael Wall Street and is wearing the Michael Wall Street gear. Well, I watch the stuff. Let me see what I have him listed as. As I look at the there, uh, New Japan, Mike Rotunda. Okay. He may be wearing the gear, but they call him Mike Rotunda because that's what they knew him as. It's Although it's his first tour ever in this promotion, previously it was in All Japan. Well, yeah. SWS, first combined show with the WF guys took place on December 6th in Himeji before 2250. As Ted DiBiase and Greg Valentine beat the Takano brothers, Jordan and Shunji, 
Tunuguchiro, Great Kabuki, and Kochi Katao, be Gorosurumi, Kendo Nagasaki, Yoshaki Yatsu, Shichinakano, Pinfumiru Nakura, Nokusano, Pintasumi Kitahara, which does match the part of the Junior Heavyweight Tournament, and Sano, Pen, uh, Nakano to win the Junior Heavyweight Tournament. Sano will have singles matches in January against El Dandy and Jeff Jarrett. Then you have Samson Fuyuki, Takashi Shikawa over the Rougeaus, Jacques and Raymond. Don Arakawa and Kenichi Oya over the Bushwhackers. And this match here is insane. Nobuyashi Sugawara, the Brooklyn Brawler, and Kenny the Stinger, or Kenny the Striker here, beat Biff Wellington, Rochester Roadblock, and Masao Orihara. Excuse me? <laughs> if war didn't begin it, it was starting SWS. Wait, and is Nubiyashi Sugawara Apollo Sugawara or someone else? It's Nobuyoshi Sugawara. And that is Apollo Sugawara. Uh, no, that's a younger guy. Uh, Cage Match says he's Apollo Sugawara. I'm thinking of, uh, I'm sorry, I'm thinking of Kurashima. Nobuyoshi Kurashima. Yeah, that is him. So, yes, this is. After Don Arakawa and Kenichi Oya over the Bushwhackers, yes. Apollo Sugawara, Brooklyn Brawler, and Kenny the Stinger. Over Beef Wellington, Roadblock, and Masao Sure. We got more. Osaka drew 6390 the next night for the WF versus SWS tournament. Surprising, the SWS guys won both first round matches. As Koji Katao beat Great Dammer Valentine in 753, and Tenro beat DBIC in 1454 with a small package. Six seconds for the time limit was about to expire. Then Tenro beat Katao to win the tournament with a power bomb in 956 of a good match. Also, Kenan Nakasaki Yoshiki Yatsu beat the Takano brothers. Greg Kabuki and Takashi Shikawa and Fuyuki beat Kenny Stinger, Rochester Roadblock of the Brooklyn Brawler. Nokusano beat Wellington. Bushwhackers over Rougeau's. And Shirumi and Nakado over Shigawara and Nakura. And Don Arakawa over Oya. And Orihara over Akira Kadiyama. And of course, the reason that Kenny the Stinger is here is that your non um, your non WWF partners are being booked through. Uh, Kind of knocks out And Nakano, Shinichi Nakano. I forgot to mention his first name. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as their SWS deal, WF has control of all the bookings involving their wrestlers. Obviously, they're being generous and trying to make the deal advantageous both sides because there seems to be no problem with their wrestlers doing jobs in Japan. Well, nobody's going to see it over here. So. Mm-hmm. All right. FMW. They ran Chiba City Gym on December the 8th from 3218. Yuki Ueno over Akira Chihara. Kubiko Masuda went to a five-minute draw with Raven Amada. Kasushi Ueda over Kim Yun-Han. A Captain Falls match. Combat Toyota, Yoshiko Madamara, and Erika Shuya over Megumi Kudo, Miwasato, and Yuki Morimatsu. Mr. Pogo won a chain death match over Riki Fuji. Tarzan Goto over Wild Bull Man. And Grigory Virchev and Boris Gogichifiji over Atsushi Nina and Sambo Osako. So yeah, they got their Russians too at this time still. Yeah, well, it's frontier martial arts wrestling. So you yeah. need your Judicas and your Sam- Sambo guys and whatnot. Raven Amato worked for All Trans Women before retiring last year. Came back to work for FMW. Had a retirement from FMW ceremony on this show. Okay. And, uh, oh, wait, Wild Bowman has a cage match. Uh, any guess? I don't remember. Well, I guess uh, Kendo Nakasaki might be recommending guys to other promotions as well because it's Dallas's Bullman Downs. I should have known that. Yeah, Bullman Downs. Leon Downs. Okay. 
right, uh, Ultraman Women. Medusa signed a six-month extension to her contract, so she'll stay in Japan until the summer 91, although she'll be going home for the holidays. Medusa was turned into a heel as part of the heel versus heel feud with Bull Nakano versus Aja Kong. That's the All Japan top feud. So Medusa's with Aja Kong and Vice Kimura must main events. And it's noted that Medusa also was featured on the December 11th issue of the show Personalities. And Medusa ends up coming home long before the end of 91. So, what happened here? But do you remember this show? Do you remember Personalities? No. Oh, who was the host of that damn show? Uh, I can't fucking remember who was the host of that show. This is just some syndicated human interest deal. Yeah, it's like a tall. It was like um, yeah, human interest version of a show like um, Entertainment Tonight, I guess. Oh, Charlie Rose was the host. Okay, well, there you go. Okay, wait, the LA Times has a story about Charlie Rose quitting as the host in uh, October. Oh, the CBS show. So there you go. And, I don't know. Oh, no, syndic- excuse me, it was syndicated. He had quit Nightwatch to host this. Oh, there this. you go. And it was, a, it was a 20th television uh, syndicated show. He was replaced by Bill Starnoff. Okay. I don't know who that is. I don't either. Debbie Drake, a Malenko student from Florida, is being talked about Bob Japan women as being brought in as a full-timer and being trained as a Japanese wrestler, a la Medusa, sometime late next year. And that, of course, is Debbie Malenko. Debbie Malenko! <laughs> and she does quite well, and then she breaks her leg. Or breaks her kneecap, or whatever the heck it was. And she's willing to take indie dates still. Like, she wants to wrestle, but it's just... <sighs> for whatever name value she brings, in, you know, decades later, which isn't much, even though she can still work well, it's all that, plus she's a flight from Montana. In case you're wondering why basically the only match she's had of any note is the West Coast Pro match with Masha Slamovich, that's why. Yeah. Which is a shame, because she, like, she's still good since she's had this comeback, but it, it's been very... infrequent because of factors like that. But, yeah, she became a good wrestler there. Now, doubling back, though, like, do you think it's true that she was supposed to be there till the summer? Because she ends up coming back in April. She doesn't end up wrestling in WCW or anything until, like, the summer. But, like, she leaves Japan in April. Hmm. You know, like, there's a whole article in, what was it? Uh, Yeah, South China Morning Post had a story about for being retired in all Japan women. All right, let's go to Mexico now. CMLL, December 7th in Mexico, saw Lolo Gonzalez and Lady Apache and Serenita over Maria de Nangel, Montevideo Lobos, who dated us the kind of Mexican version of Dump Matsumoto, and Matero Serena by Count on Third Fall, one star. They were tar, particularly Gonzalez, but lots of missed moves. You can tell where this report's coming from. Start a lucha. Jerry Estorada, Mila Chales Jr., and Fazagarera, who had the three best workers, or three of the best workers in Mexico, won two straight over Volador, Octagon, and Uricano Ramirez Jr. Finished to the second false all three Technicos, had their mask ripped off, ripped up, primarily by Fuerza. Then they tore his mask up as well. Had two spectacular out of ring dives by Volador and Ramirez. Fuerza turned Octagon's mask around. 
Octagon swung wild as he couldn't see, and accidentally hit Otakano Ramirez, who was coming in to help him with a low blow. Fueros then made Octagon Ramirez submit with a half crabs. Lots of post-match activity for challenges for next week's show. Dave's not sure if Octagon and Fueros will have a mass versus mass match. Will be a three-way with Octagon Fueros and Otakano Ramirez, the losers having that mask. If it's the latter, then Ramirez did a terrible job because he never appeared to be upset at Octagon for the mistake and low blow. Oh, yeah, speculating about an Octagon Fuzz got out of mask match in 1990. <laughs> Both men still have their masks. Yeah. Uh, two and three quarter stars. Satanico, Universal Desmond, and Ulysses went two straight from Atlantis at Daniel Sangre Chicana. First fall saw both referees' backs turn while Daniel Satanico were going at it, which is the hottest feud in the promotion. Satanico grabbed his crotch and screamed as a low blow, a foul. It didn't happen. The referee DQ Dandy. Between falls, which went behind the rest back, Dandy gave Satanico a low blow, however, so he's still in the mood big after laughing about tricking <laughs> tricking in the way and winning the first fall. However, Satanico pinned Dandy with a powerbomb second fall. After the match, Dandy challenged Satanico to a Caballero coach Caballero match, which will probably take place just for Dandy leaves for Japan. Three stars. And the main event saw Masco Anya dos Mios, Ian Carlos, and Fabloso Blondi beat Conan, Rick Mendoza, and Raluska Jr. in two out of three falls. Two and a half stars. Conan may surprise people at Starcade with his leapfrogs. He reminds uh, Dave, Dr. Lucha, whoever, of Doug Furness, and that it is shocking how a guy so muscular can jump so high. Well, that's over after he fucks up his knee on I know. the shows we talked about. So, Yeah. Um, God, I love the way they play off that low blow stuff in that in the uh, Satanico Dandy. Isn't there a singles where they play off of this, too? Yeah, I think it's the hair match that's coming up. Yeah, where they do more to play off of this whole, like, cat and mouse, low blow, fake low blow thing. Yeah. Great feud. They read the biggest card many months on December 14th in Mexico. Drawn a set of 18,000 fans. As Raluca Jr., Atlantis, and Enrique Mendoza won two out of three from Fabulosa Blonde, Universal Dismil, Moscow, Anya Dismil. Blondie lost his hair two weeks ago, wore headgear and a long woman's wig. Finished the third fall, saw Mendoza pull the wig off, revealing his bald head, which got a big pop. And Mendoza's small package and two and a half stars. The semifinal was the best match on Galvez in a long time. If it's a better match than you, if you've been following the feud and understand what's going on. Not that Dave understands anything that goes on here, but enough to really enjoy the match. So this is very early in Dave's lucha watching. Dave, um... <laughs> Dave watches immediately after Starcade and thought it was two notches above Wyndham and Arn Anderson's match. It was a Caballero Coach Caballero match with Dandy against Satanico. Dandy was jumped for the ring and chosen posted in Juice, but won the first fall in 439 with his Dandina. They turned lots of near falls in the second before Satanico won the Gory Special in 606. Gory Special named it the Gorgoretto. It was a Bruno Sammartino soft backbreaker from the 60s. John Studd using the WF in the 80s. Not necessarily the same. With the guy then taken down for that. Put- Position to backslide. Third fall turned into a real bloodbath with one near fall after another. Danny did one after the road, so missed on the second, landed on his face outside the ring. Crowd's popping like crazy for the near fall at this point. Satanico so came back and a cat and shack style elbow off the, off the apron onto the floor. Danny kept kicking out what looked like sure falls until a ref bump. Danny went for the Hashimoto leg layer, but Satanico sidestepped and the ref got back in. Danny grabbed his crotch and screamed he'd be given a low blow. Story behind this is that last week on a six-man Satanico Rudo had faced a low blow behind the rest bat and won a fall on Dandy. The crowd began chanting, foul, fouls, as low blows are met DQs in Mexico, and the ref raised Dandy's hand in 12-18. Satanico then had his head shaved. Four and a half stars. 
So there you go, Bex. That's the way. That's the match. Next game, a three-way mass versus mass situation. Was it going to hook on the Miz? You're not the gun. The rules were they would fit, wrestle each other two until one man won two straight matches. Then two losers face the two at three fall match with loser having a mask. Resident Romero submit in 326 with a move Dave couldn't even begin to describe. One star. The Cinemas teacher battle would go down in Octagon, who's now clearly the most popular wrestler in Rio Mexico, with Fuerza juicing heavily from the opening bell, but he won in 523 reversing Octagon submission. Three stars. So Octagon and Romero had their mass match, both technicos, split the first fall, each going 30 seconds. Fans with the fast second fall because two straight falls and then after one spot is a bit much. Third fall was exciting with one great spot to another. Ramirez went for a dive to the roads and other guns sprint out of the way, but not looking. Hit his head on the ring post while Ramirez crashes to the floor. Other guns mentioned one of 406 and Ramirez on mass revealing one Sevilla Gonzalez who suffered a shoulder separation in the last missed dive. Two and a half stars. Yeah, that Danny Satanica match is fantastic. What you would expect. And they probably got a match between those two guys. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Kamala was fired by the promotion for his poor performance. There were poor quotes from both promoters and wrestling newspapers that they had left saying he had no talent and called him a coward. Well, a week la- next week. A week later, now, a week later, Kamala actually quit. CMLA wasn't fired. There were problems related to his manager, Armand Hussein. Okay, so two things. One, I'm glad that you're making a point to pronounce it Kimala, since we're outside the WWF, and it's spelled Kimala. Uh, the other is, wait, so was Armand Hussein working as his manager in Arena Mexico, or was he a shoot manager? Um, I think he was actually working as a shoot manager here. But was he in Mexico, or was he just getting Kamala booked there? Just Kamala booked. Okay. Oh, we've got more great-sounding wrestling. UWA... We have one result here for our week. Arena Isabel de Cuernavaca. A UWA welterweight title match. Ilda Santo defeated Negro Casas. Now, we do have this, but we have the full results of the card. Connect defeated Big Van Vader for the UWA world title on December 9th at El Torreo. While Dave didn't know the fact, Dave believed Connect probably won the match by countout rather than pinfall. Don't expect Vader back in Mexico to challenge for the title. Then Connect defeated Dos Caras a day later on December 10th to retain the title in Mexico City. So, was yeah. this the three world titles on separate continents run for Vader? It's the end of it. That's what I mean, though. Yeah. It's the end of it. This was the last one standing. Yeah. All right. Well, it's halftime. So, uh, after these great 1990 commercial fifth at halftime, where we'll talk about the Patreon, we'll talk about uh, our streaming friends with the plugs, then we'll come back and go back to the United States where we'll have a. Uh, Dick Slater in his movie career. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about uh, some Southern Indie stuff. We got some USWA clips, including the return of the Fabulous Ones in Memphis. Plus, uh, Jerry Lawler has a bounty on his head. And, yeah, we'll have news on Joe Pettacino's GWF. All that more after the break. It's a great toy table for Red Target. It's great prices on toys. Get this Nintendo Action Set with Control Deck, two controllers, zapper gun, and two game cartridge, only $99.99. The action continues with a Nintendo Game Boy system that puts the power in the palm of your hand, just $89.99. I'm on a roll! I hate when this happens! Nice legs! The Great Toy Takeover at Target. 
Introducing a new idea in air freshening, Glade Country Pottery. Put out the pottery, put it here, put it there. Simple handmade pieces of glazed pottery. Put it everywhere, put out the pottery, put the fresh country air anywhere. The porous clay releases the light, fresh scent for 30 days. Just put out the pottery, put the fresh country air everywhere. Put out the pottery, new Glade Country Pottery. I know it looks a lot like rain, but let's wait just another day or two. MC Hammer, rap star and Pepsi drinker. Well, today, we secretly replaced his Pepsi with Coke. Let's see what happens. Feelings, nothing more than feelings. Hammer! Problem. Is it possible? We've had that refrigerator since 84. Hey, listen to this. Car expenses took 10% of the budget last month. Yeah, Mom, I finished with my homework. Yay! You're good at this game. Finally, a computer so easy to use it guarantees success. The Tandy 1000RL with 24 built-in home organizing solutions. Now on sale. Only at Radio Shack, America's technology store. Nobody compares for Christmas shopping. Tell toys are fun, you see. Now you can get them so easily. For toy money coupons on specially marked packages of Coca-Cola Classic, Diet Coke, and Sprite. You'll save one, two, up to seven dollars instantly on select Mattel toys. Toy money. Toy money. This Christmas, give the gift of total excitement. Fasten your seatbelt. Give total recall on video cassette. Catch. Arnold Schwarzenegger. I knew you wouldn't let me down. Total recall. Now on video cassette. Dorothy's best-dressed brother meets his maker on The Golden Girls. I believe Phil would have liked this dress. I said he would have looked great in it. And on Empty Nets. Oh, my God, he's an Adonis. Carol's losing her new boyfriend to a real dog. Hi, fella. I couldn't help notice you over here. Then Bob Hope's in Bermuda with Lonnie Anderson, Joan Van Ark, Dixie Carter, and the All-American team. A Bob Hope Christmas, NBC Saturday. All right, we're back. Hope you enjoyed your 1990 commercials. As we pivot to halftime, seven to the show. We'll be into my Patreon, patreon.com slash twin sheets. And uh, we haven't the latest Patreon show up. As we look at the One Warrior Nation, Ultimate Warriors uh, running WCW in 1998. 
So if you haven't listened to that yet, please do that. It is a uh, really fun show. You know, lots of clips, lots of craziness. So a different type of show than we normally do, but very good nonetheless. And um, very light. So uh, everybody check that out. Um, Well worth your time. And listen to the other shows that we've done in our seven plus years of the Patreon now. And uh, we got more good shows coming, including this month, where we'll talk about uh, the Von Erics, the last days of Von Erics, and uh, got a lot going on there. Um, this will be kind of the opposite of the Warrior show in uh, tone, yeah. so to speak. But uh, it's definitely an interesting show, especially you know with the movie being out uh, before the month's over with. So. Um, Five dollars a month in case you're asked us to listen to all the shows we've done and the, the Von Eric show that we're going to have come out. Uh, Five dollars a month. Patreon.com slash Twin Chiefs gets you access to that. Dollar a month gets you access to the Discord and thanks in this segment. $25 allows you to pick a show for the week. Now, if you plan on doing that, have two shows in mind just in case the show that you may want us to do. Could be something that somebody else has already had on the calendar picked out, or it could be something that we've already discussed on the show before. Um, get with Bix and myself on uh, why you want to do the show, and we'll make sure that we can get your show on the air. Whichever show you want to do, we'll let you know. Um, remember the protocol on the Patreon website to, follow, to get that information to us. Remember also 30-day rules in effect, 10-year rules in effect, Wednesday to Tuesday on the timeline. So all that stuff. $50 gets you access to uh, a segment. You can do a segment with us on the show. And 100 lets you do the whole show. You don't have to do it, but it's part of the, the perks of uh, that donation. All that at patreon.com slash between the sheets. All right, Big Sweat, this week is our new and or returning patrons. All right, we've got a bunch, especially because we didn't do last week, even though we're recording this a couple days earlier than usual this week. But we'd like to thank... Dale Montgomery. Thanks, Dale. Sean Watts. Thanks, Sean. Matthew Rude. Thanks, Matthew. Thomas Keenan. Thanks, Thomas. Ross Fraser. Or Fraser, I guess. Thanks, Ross. Uh, Ian Martin edited his membership to Annual. Thanks, Ian. And that's 50 40 at the $5 tier. 60%. Yes. yes. Uh, also, like to thank Bill. Thanks, Bill. Roy Rogers. Never met a man he didn't like. Thanks, Roy Rogers. Austin Smith. Thanks, Austin. Adalberto Lopez Jr. Thanks, Adalberto. Uh, joining us as an annual member, dear friend Alan Cudahan. Ah, oh, yes, the great Alan Forel. Thank you, Alan, for being annual with us. Yes, we should have him on if we do another Hall of Fame show next year, just just so we can hear that lovely brogue saying Kento Miyahara over and over. <laughs> yeah, we got to get Alan back on again sometime. It's You know, he lives in Europe, so the, the uh, time difference there. But, uh, yeah, we need to try that out and get him back on. Yes, yes, yes. Maybe we need to get Sarah's permission first. <laughs> to coordinate the times. Yeah. Anyway, uh, also like to thank Michael Richardson. Thanks, Michael. Paul K. Thanks, Paul K. 
not to be confused with Paul E. Dangerously, Commissioner Paul E. or uh, Paul T., who we talked about last week. Yeah. And finally, uh, having edited his membership to uh, annual, Rob Strothman. Thanks, Rob. So thank you on your new patrons, old patrons, patrons that have been there from the beginning, patrons that have come along the way. We thank all of you for your patronage at patreon.com slash between the sheets. All right, Bix, it's time to talk about our streaming friends. What's going on in the world of IWTV and Fight TV this weekend? All right, let's see. Uh, IWTV's added some uh, new, whatchamacallit, some new on-demand stuff. Uh, they posted a new uh, Lucha Memes show from November 25th, uh, Tributos to Dos, that does include uh, Mystico in the main event in a four-way. So people might want to check that out. Uh, they do have the, I don't know if it's also on YouTube, because I'm still kind of confused as to how the current uh, West Coast Pro setup goes, but they do have the West Coast Pro show from uh, last Sunday with Chris Hero on Kenta against uh, Titus Alexander and Kevin Blackwood in the main event, which I have not seen that show yet. I have heard, I've heard that the Lucha Trios match on that show is completely insane. And from the gifts I've seen, that seems accurate. Um, I think it was Black Taurus and Los Vipers, which I guess would be um, Toxin and Latigo against, I think it was Ray Orus, Armis, and a partner who was debuting. I think. I'm not 100% sure. But uh, actually, wait, why am I not just clicking on the thing since it's here? Uh <laughs> It was, uh, as I look here, okay, yes, Armies, Iron Kid, and Wicked Wicket against uh, Black Taurus, Latigo, and Tuxine. Okay, so it was only one, one off, no, uh, no Ray Orus. But yes, that looks like a hell of a show, so I'm curious to check that out soon, and uh, since we didn't do last week, oh, Wildside Fright Night 2002 is up now. Yeah, I saw it was up. Uh, there's a part one and a part two, I guess? Because I'm scrolling, and at least yeah. I just saw a part two. Um, oh, and the live for the month went up, featuring Tony Deppen as well, from our uh, dear friend John Philip Havage. Uh, oh, wait, is it a part one and part two? Uh, okay, no, no, no. It's, yeah, no, it's just Fright Night 2002. So Fright Night 2002 includes... Uh, Junior title, Slim J against Kid Cool, which... Wait, is Kid Cool Seth or Sal? <clears throat> Kid Cool Seth Delay. Okay. Uh, Jeremy V and Jeff Lewis versus Future Shock. Tank and Scotty Wren against Dr. Harrisy and Brian Black. Oh, is this a different kind of show from your usual big show because it's Fright Night? More of like your brawling type wild side wrestlers? I mean, it's a Fright Night show. I feel like there were other Fright Nights that had more of, like, the High Flyers than this, though. That's what I'm, That's why I was a little surprised. But, so yeah, more uh, more Old Wild Side going up. Uh, trying to see, since we didn't do last week, if there's anything else. But I think those are the main uh, on-demand additions to IWTV, besides whatever, you know, whatever Wild Side TV archival has been going up and whatnot as well. And now coming up, uh, this week, 
live stream wise. Uh, well, actually, one thing I will mention, since we didn't get to do halftime last week, is it hasn't happened yet as of this recording, but we'll, it will have and will be up on on demand by the time you hear this. Is that our dear friend Matt Griffin had an action wrestling show on uh, December eighth, uh, Bangers Only Four, that featured among other things a uh, main event of Alex. Uh, no, no, excuse me, Adam Priest defending the title against Alex Kane and Cruel in a three way. Our dear friend Daniel Makabe taking on Billy Starks, uh, and much more. So that should be available on demand by the time you hear this. Now, coming up on live streams, Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern, episode 6 of H2O Uncharted Territory, including uh, Marcus Mathers defending the ETU title against Adam Priest, uh, Miracle Generation defending the IWTV tag titles against Culture Inc., uh, Christian Ross defending his Deathmatch Discovery Gauntlet title, and more. So, a couple of... Uh, Northeast versus Southeast matches on that show. So that should be interesting. Uh, oh, ICW No Holds Barred kind of has a show. Well, I think there's also a deathmatch show, but they are doing ICW New York one night only. Which, because there hasn't been anything in New York since they became No Holds Barred because they've gone pretty much all or mostly deathmatch. So this is kind of bringing it back to when it was ICW New York for a show that includes... Eric Ryan versus Homicide, uh, Brian Myers against Danny DeManto, Brandon Kirk versus Cruel, Dr. Redacted, John Wayne Murdoch, Marcus Mathers versus Ezreal, and more. Oh, I surprise this would be at the bottom. Jimmy Lloyd and Hoodfoot, so that and more at the uh, at the Elks Lodge in Queens, but not the famous Elks Lodge that became the church, the kind of the shitty one with the pillars that makes it hard to see that's been the Elks Lodge for the last you know, 15 plus years. There's that. Uh, ETU has a show in Newark on Saturday at 3 p.m. Eastern, which includes Marcus Mathers defending the title against Ken Broadway, uh, IWTV tag titles with Miracle Generation defending against the high-flying star machines. Uh, who else do we have? Janai Kai against Christina Marie and more. Oh, wait. In the and more at the bottom that does not have a match listed yet, at least on this, is Kushida. Okay. <laughs> We're, oh, and also BK Westbrook taking on Joey Janela. So, interesting mix of talent on that. Uh, Limitless has a show, Force of Nature, Saturday at 7.30 p.m., headlined by Channing Thomas defending the title against Ace Romero. Among other matches, uh, then ICW No Holds Barred has Saturday at 8 p.m. So in Newark, so it's basically part of a doubleheader with ETU. First show that includes Hoodfoot defending the title against Dr. Redacted, Rule versus Eric Ryan, and more. Oh, oh, I, mean, I almost missed something, actually. Madman Pondo teaming with Shadow WX against Tommy Vendetta and MM3, so... Shadow WX making his uh, Northeast debut. And yeah, that's it as far as IWTV. So if you're not already a subscriber, use code BTSPOD at checkout and we'll get a referral fee for as long as you stay a paid subscriber. So meanwhile, on Fight Plus, they have a very light week coming, at least this week as far as live. I didn't make a point of checking to see if there was any like unlisted stuff yet from the ones they might take time with and 
there's does not appear to be. So the the uh, main show they've got coming up this week is a Melbourne City wrestling show on wait. So the sixteenth is Saturday at uh three thirty a.m. Eastern because it's live from Australia. As I click a link to go to another show by mistake, that's not what I meant to do. Um, I scroll back down to listing, but yeah, at least from what's here so far, you know, Adam Brooks would be the uh, most recognizable name on here. And, uh, you know, they've been adding, uh, as they have their thing where they add like the New Japan Strong shows like six months after they happen. So they're up to the show from DC earlier in the year now. If you want to check that out, they been adding, adding multiple classic TNA shows to Fight Plus lately. Um, I did go to the GCW Brooklyn show, which was very good. Had a good time there. Uh, people want to check that out on demand. You know, Maki Ito Speedball was really good. Uh, Masha Slamovich against Hotsauce Tracy Williams. Jordan Oliver against Gringo Loco. So, very solid card there. And... I mean, yeah, there will also be the MLW show in New York, which I don't think I'm going to, will have happened by the time you hear this, and that will be available on demand, but I think we talked about that last week. So, tinyurl.com slash btsfight, that's B-T-S-F-I-T-E. Use that for our referral link, whether you're subscribing to Fight Plus or buying iPay-per-views from Fight TV. <clears throat> Today's episode between the Chiefs is sponsored by Private Internet Access, America's number one virtual private network. You can use incognito mode, your nurse service provider sorting your browsing data and many times even selling it. <clears throat> but private internet access can help. Private internet access encrypts and reroutes your internet traffic through one of its own servers, hiding your data from your nurse service provider or network administrator. And with servers in over 75 different countries, you can get unrestricted access to geoblock content from around the world. Private internet access comes each of these apps, a browser search of all devices, a raw soft privacy policy, open source security, advanced customization settings, and just ranked the fastest VPN in the world by PC Mac. If you sign up private internet access right now, you take advantage of a special deal for Between the Sheets listeners. Let's talk about that, shall we? We offer three different packages for you guys. You can get your straight monthly package, that's $11.95 a month. You can go yearly at $3.33 a month, or $39.95 a year. Or you can go for the best one of all. Three years plus four free months at $1.98 a month. $79 for the first two years, really thereafter. 83% off. An amazing, amazing deal. Why is that? Because it's so much more inexpensive than virtually every other VPN on the market. If you get it right now, take advantage of private internet access 30 day risk free challenge. Try it off 30 days if you like. If not, just turn for full refund. So you get that, you ask, you, well, you go to privateinternetaccess.com slash the sheets and try the best damn VPN on the planet completely risk-free. <clears throat> All right, next week on Between the Sheets, we'll go back to 1997, where Bret Hart makes his debut for WCW at Nitro in Charlotte. So we'll talk about that. And some issues that they had that night with some fans. And uh, WCW wrestling has some issues with, with some fans days earlier in Buffalo at a bar after a show. So we'll have news on that. We got an update on the law, lawsuit with Jerry Law and USWA. We got Stevie Richards possibly having career-ending surgery. We got Taka Michinoku coming out of Japan. That's WFI Heavyweight Champion. The worst show is Michinoku Pro. We got Tokyo Sports Awards from 97. We got Ken Shamrock, who is uh, just... Signed the new deal with WWE, 
uh, canceling his fight with Nobuka Takada that was planned for USC Japan and during our uh, well after our week. So well, we'll we should also that. probably put fight in quotes, regardless of well, whatever was yes. planned. But. Yes. And in WWF, we got a uh, wild episode of Monday Night Raw featuring Owen Hart's return, cutting a shoot promo. We got, uh, what else we got? We got um, Shawn Michaels and Triple H helping out the New Age Outlaws as they destroy the Road Warriors as we get kind of a unofficial beginning of the New Age Outlaws being associates of Degeneration X. That's the uh, strip poker game, right? Oh, no. This is it. This is the week before or the week after. Um, strip poker is not during our week. Okay, that was the week before. No, this is uh, this is LOD versus Sean and Hunter. Okay, but we also have news of the Road Warriors. I mean, so we got news of uh, Bulldog and Anvil and their status in WF at the time. But the big story in our week, WCW and only promotion have problems with fans. As fans uh, basically took over WF house shows in Memphis and Little Rock during our week and caused some major problems and got some local publicity as well. Major problems. So we'll have all that more next week on Between the Sheets. Or you can follow me on Twitter at Chris Zellner, K-R-I-S-Z-E-L-N-E-R. Show proper BT Sheets by Big Set David Bix. And um, kind of... Uh, under the weather as we record this, so don't think we're going to do any major talking about anything uh, going on in the wrestling world. But if there's anything that you need to plug, Bix, you know, feel free. Uh, I don't know if there's anything this week, so we're we're still not going to talk about the return of CM Punk then. Well, I think we're going. I want to wait because I, I think the the raw promo. I I personally liked it, but. I understand why it was what it was. I want, I think I want to wait and see what he does on SmackDown, which has already happened after, after you listen to this. And then on raw Monday, mm. because that's the progression of the angle. And at least, you know, on these shows, he won't be rushed and triple H will be in the building, which yeah. those two things weren't, didn't happen on this show. And, and, you know, after uh, Survivor Series. So, yeah. I kind of want to wait and see. But, I mean, hey, it was a, I mean, it was a touch-and-go thing, and, hey, it happened. So, uh, we'll see where they go from here. So, you do, you do not feel like you looked dead inside during the initial promo, like many? <clears throat> no. Okay. I think, people, I think a lot of people are blowing this way out of proportion. Way out of proportion. I think this dude knows this is his last chance. And he better act right. Or he's done. He's lucked out. He got a, a good deal from what has been said. So, and he can't talk about AEW. So, people that were expecting that, that ain't happening because he's on NDA. So, I mean, we're going to go into the Rollins feud, I guess. You know? Uh, that's, su- the th- that's the only thing they've directly teased so far. Yeah. That's what I'm, I'm kind of surprised they're going this early with it. But, hey, whatever. But, yeah, uh, I mean, it makes me wonder what else they have planned. Well, I suppose there's a lot. <laughs> so, we'll see. But um, it's on him. Everything in that, everything that he has in his future is on him now. 
And if he fucks this up, like I said, he's done. He's done. Yeah. But from WWE's perspective, do you try to get all the biggest stuff out of the way early? Because of um, that. Because it's not, Sam and I want to say the biggest happened. stuff. I say the stuff that you need to get done, which is the Seth thing, because that's the that's the one that's been pressing the most. As of the full timers, yes. And that's the one that's been building. Yes. So, I mean, you've already you've been building this for months before it's actually he's actually there. Yeah. So that's, a, that's also just a weird one because like as best as I can tell, the heat from Rollins's end is not really over much of anything that happened between them personally. No, it's everything afterwards. Yeah. So Yeah, like I said, it's on him. It's on Punk to 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 fly right and let's do it. Yeah. Um real quick, I'll I'll mention this too. Have you seen the <laughs> have you seen how it turned out controversial that Matt Cardona tweeted that indie promoters should be buying cases of bottled water to put in the back for the talent? No. <sighs> Apparently, and I, I see now Cardona shared one of them on Twitter. So, I don't know if the... Oh yeah, it was a promoter, <clears throat> I guess, or someone saying as a promoter. This apparently became controversial among indie promoters on Facebook, even though you can buy, what is it, like a 24-pack of bottled water at Costco for like $4 or something? I mean, it depends on the brand of water. I mean, it, we're just saying bottled water. It doesn't have to be spring water. It can be purified. I mean, I mean, I'm saying it depends on the brand because uh, – And we're just getting generic brand can be purified Niagara, water. Niagara water, which is our cheaper brand, is, th- is 349 For a 24, 24 pack of pints. Yeah. I think Walmart yeah. has cheap if you, too. If you wanted like Aquafine or Dasani, then you're going to be paying a little bit more. Which is stupid because those are all purified. You should with purified, you should just get the cheapest water you can. But they're all but people buy the brand. We sell a lot of Dasani because it's Coke branded. Yeah, I tell you, I tell you what's the hot selling water now is Callaway Blue, and that shit's really more than everything else. A twenty four pack of Callaway Blue regular is about nine ninety nine. Is that spring water purified sparkling? What? It's a uh, a spring water. Okay, but it's it's but people swear by this shit. Hmm. It's it's the closest thing to drinking well water that you can get out of a bo- out of a store bought bottle. Callaway Blue, like, like so it tastes say, that good. There are people there. There's this one lady that comes in the store that said that she only buys that water for her husband because she believes that water is helping her husband and his uh, health issues. Interesting. Uh, the magic of Callaway Blues Mountain Water. I'm looking at their website. Is it's incredible purity? Our only responsibility is to bottle and share it with the world. Mother Nature did all the heavy lifting. They have a whole thing about what makes them different. I'm trying to think if I've even seen this in stores in New York. But for what it's worth, though, Walmart great value purified 24 pack of 16.9 ounces. Yeah, three sixty four. Yeah. Like, so. it, it, every wrestler that is bringing this up, and Cardona is far from the only wrestler I've heard bring this up, is right. You can get two cases of this, and it still costs less than half from what you get from a ticket. Just do it. There, there's no reason not to. 
Uh, they have a forty pack for five thirty six. Um, you know, looking at Walmart, it's 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 ridiculous to not just get. And then you know, hold on to it for next time because apparently some promoters said, like, uh, oh, you should. That, oh, you guys don't always use all the bottles. It's water. Uh, can I just say I've had, I I am officially sick of. I mean, this is warranted for the wrestlers to take issue with it. I am just sick of indie drama these days. I'm going to hold my tongue on that topic. <laughs> I have too many friends in indie wrestling, so I'm going to hold my tongue on that topic. All right, well, on that note, let's get back to the rest of the show. All right, let's go to the U.S. indie scene now. And uh, <clears throat> Dave notes, did any of you who saw the new Rocky movie notice that Dick Slater was one of the doubles doing the stunts? Well, was the double doing the stunts for Tommy Gunn, Tommy Morrison, in the climactic street fight segment? I like I call it segment scene. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, when you watch it and you look for it, you can take it. I mean, you can, yeah, because, I mean, one thing, they do have similar hair at this time. Yes. So. And Terry Funk is the fight choreographer for this exactly. scene. Yes. So, um, Bix has it on YouTube. Right now, we're not going to play the sound. Well, well, I could. Should I do like very low sound or no sound? No sound would be all right. All right. So here we go. And actually, let me make sure I am. We are viewing it. Okay, yes, we are viewing it in the highest possible fidel visual fidelity. All right, and I will. Someone's whipping his ass. I will make it full screen so you can see it better too. Well, I can't see anything right now. Oh, you can't? Hold on. No. What happened? Oh, it went away. That's weird. Oh, did it go away when I made it full screen? I guess, uh, yeah, you can't do that, I guess. Didn't I used to be able to do that? No, I don't think you've ever done it in okay. picture in picture. Or share screen. I mean, you have to look for it, if you know it. Well, it's it's once they really start tussling with each other, is where it becomes a bit more obvious. When there's a lot more, like, street fighting, like, tugging on each other and stuff and and also when we're when it gets to the point where we're seeing Tommy's face less yeah it is involving wrestling or, gr or grappling yes yes because Tommy can throw the punches we know that yes because it is Tommy Morrison it's Tommy Gunn yep <laughs> I love that it's probably just that they had the same hair and it's Terry Funk. Well, it's Terry Funk. <laughs> That's the most important thing. Who who can I trust to most uh, get my vision across? Oh yeah, fake Terry Funk. The hair is a bonus. Okay, we skip through uh, Rocky going through flashbacks of times he's been knocked down. Uh, what's his face? Fake Don King is pulling Tommy away. What's fake Don King's name? It's the guy that played Jackie Childs on the uh, No, but what's the character's name? Oh, I can't remember the name. Okay. There's a, there's a moment, I think, coming up where it's very obviously uh, Richard, or what is it, Van Richard Slater? Richard Van Slater. Oh, it's Richard Van Slater. Okay. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When they're doing the hockey fight stuff, it is very obviously Dick Slater. Yes. 
I'm guessing this was not as obvious on regular standard definition television. That uh, no. Maybe you could notice it in the theater, but not uh, not not at home until the advent of uh, Blu-ray. Yeah, in the theater. Also, look at how much they're doing these quick cuts too to hide Dick Slater's face as well. Yes. Yeah. Like, watch here. That's obviously Dick Slater until they yeah. cut. Yeah. Yeah. Also, note how weirdly puffy the jacket is to hide the di- the very big difference in their t- physiques. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it's, <laughs> I feel like people sometimes think that Terry Funk was making up that he and Stallone became friends, but that's a shoot. Well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's, that's definitely Dick Slater. Yeah. <laughs> but they, it's, <sighs> it was that Sly loved his audition video for Paradise Alley. He then helped choreograph par- the fight scenes in Paradise Alley. And then later on, when he needed him for, like, non-boxing fight choreography, that was his guy. Yeah. Because he also did, what was it, what was it, Rambo 2 or something he did fight choreography? It was some, something like that. Yeah. <clears throat> Luna Machan's Major League Wrestling will be seen on lots of lower-power UHS stations starting shortly. Herb Abrams is working on co-promoting with MLW. Oh, thanks, Howard Brody. <laughs> um, that yeah, that's that's ladies' major league wrestling. Well, yes. Which, if you've ever actually seen it in the U.S., it's probably because you saw it when Herb Abrams ran out of TV to air, and he made a deal with uh, Howard to air the ladies' major league wrestling shows. But they were talking about co-promoting at this time as well, though. So there was a relationship. I I guess so. I don't remember it airing around here, so. Well, you never had Sports Channel America, so you never saw it subbing but it for UWF. But it's stations, though, too. I mean, I'm sure it aired somewhere before the Sports Channel America episodes, but, like, I don't know any specific examples, you know? Yeah, I just know, I mean, hell, just about everything aired here, so. The fact that it didn't says something. At least when I search newspapers.com, the only results for ladies major league wrestling are not TV listings. It's, it's you know, wrestling columns and stuff like that. I guess if I'd search for major league, well, major league wrestling would probably include global if I did 1991. So let me do yes. minus GWF. Let's see. Uh, no, it's still mainly just the wrestling column stuff. South Atlanta Pro Wrestling taped TV on December 8th in Siler City, North Carolina before 300 very vocal fans. Biggest thing Curtis was Curtis Thompson turned babyface. Paul Jones didn't wrestle, so maybe they aren't going to use him as a top face no more. Well, Paul was... He was a manager, but he was wrestling too, but, you know, more of a manager. Mm. Uh, Matt Bourne quit the promotion after selling all of the accident claims, so he's got some money and took off. <laughs> Frank D- Dusick and Gene Legan do the television. Wrestler Tommy Seabolt's been hospitalized with neck surgery. He tried to Frankensteiner and landed wrong. I mean, yes. that That is the peril of doing a move where the guy who invented the move always lands on his own head. <laughs> uh, yes. And lucky that Scott Steiner didn't... Uh, 
really in- seriously injured. It's kind of insane that Scott Steiner does not have, like, the worst neck in wrestling history. Like, all of his spinal issues are low back that we know of, right? Yeah. Like, you watch, like, all those Frankensteiners and Blockbuster suplexes. Like, he keeps landing right on his head and neck. And it seems like he hasn't had any major neck problems. No. This is, I mean, I would say toward the end because South Atlantic goes through 92, but we really don't have TV after 1990 on video. I used to have some. Um, you've never seen any of the later stuff, like with the Patriots? I've seen and, it. But, but you saw it at the time on Pettacino yeah. Block. Yeah. yeah, we don't have it. Yeah. It's not on YouTube. I don't see it on any places where you can get this type of stuff. So you don't see, you haven't seen any later stuff on a certain a long time tape trader's tape list. I'm saying it's not on a, it's not on a YouTube or. Oh, you mean online? Okay. That's what I'm saying. Online. Yeah. And there's a little bit if I search on Roy's channel on on YouTube, there's a little bit that comes up on Roy Lucier's channel. But I mean, not like the other one. I mean, 1990, we have pretty much the whole run. Yes. So, that's what I'm talking about. Plus, there's the stuff on Savoldi's gimmick, too, and the, from earlier on. All right, PWF in Florida, December 6th in Tampa, saw Lou Perez beat Jimmy back on a steel cage match when Ron Slinker gave back on a foreign object and he used it on Perez and pinned him. The face referee, Mickey J, reversed it. Lebanese assassin beat Steve Kern by countout. Don Harris beat Hurricane Walker. Sergeant Rocco with Frankie Lancaster and Ron Slinker over the Coconut Kid. Then we go a week later in Tampa. Steve Kern beat Tex Salinger with Johnny G. Lyons, heel manager, as ref as referee. Lyons was bumped and face referee Mickey J counted the pinfall. Also, Hurricane Walker beat Slinker by DQ, and after the match, Slinker kept pounding on Walker until Rocky Johnson made the save. Yes, that Rocky Johnson. Johnny Pavros, be Powerhouse Parker, Frankie Lancaster, Johnny Be Good, and Mark Sarver, Mike Tobacco. Powerhouse Parker is Tim Parker, right? Uh, yes. So, there's that promotion. Now let's go to Memphis. Well, the USWA, because at this time, the USWA is just the Memphis territory. Exactly, yes. Although that's about to change again. Yes. Doug Gilbert, Tony Anthony, Regan, USWA Tag Titles, being Jeff Jarrett and Cody Michaels on TV on December 8th. In the finish of the tag title change, Joseph Magliano came to the ringside and gave Anthony a foreign object, which he used on Michaels to get the pin. They have some kind of long-range angle going on. As at the studio, there was a wanted poster with a $10,000 bounty on Jerry Lawler's head. Lawler, in his interview, said the match on the 10th at the Coliseum, which features Lawler and the Fabulous Ones, Stan and Steve, against uh, the Gilberts and Dirty White Boy was shaky because Lane and Cornette weren't sure if they wanted the team with Kern again. Well, let's watch this, uh, shall we? Let's watch this little deal here. How do I get in touch with the King? What's going on with the King? Those are some of the questions that I hear just uh, every week. Well, here's the way to do it. Call the King's hotline, one 900 Excuse me? <laughs> That is the hotline number. That's yeah, the way you can get in touch with the king. Everybody knows. 654 5464 Speaking of the kids. It is 1990. Also, Hunt, the Jerry Lawler hotline in 1990 does not have a kid's get your parents' permission. Interesting. You can also find out where he's playing softball and all that stuff. When did kids get your parents' permission become standard? I feel like it was by this point. 
in the 90s. It wasn't mandatory until after this? Somewhere in the 90s, yeah. Okay. Right there. We'll try to uh, maybe to uh, give you that number a little bit later, too. If there's... Oh, and he's full uh, 1990 Jerry Lawler uh, clothing mode. At the desk, if he will. And we Neon green tights. A couple of interesting things that are going to be go- that are going on. Jerry Lawler is the real truth. T-shirt that Mikey Whipwreck would yeah, find distasteful. I agree with that. King, join me right here at the desk, if you will. Yeah, please. And uh, that microphone should be. That was Lawler security guard there. Right there. there. Sign. I want to ask you about several things. Uh, for one thing, I got my shirt first, Dave. All right. How about the shirt? It's a great yeah, nice shirt. shirt. Yeah, it's a good shirt, isn't it? A friend of mine out at the. Uh, yeah, there you go. A friend of mine out at uh, the coming to play flea market made this for me last week. He said, uh, he said, "I'll make it for you for free if you show it on TV." So I'm showing it on TV. I got myself a free shirt, and it's great. And you can go out there and get one. And as a matter of fact, I, re- I want to mention briefly. Uh, Come, come here, Ernie. Look at this. I want to mention the uh, my other earthquake shirt. Oh, the earthquake shirt. Yeah, th- there it is, right there. So, so see some people get it. And it was a fake quake, as we say. That's right. So, uh, but Ernie stood his ground right there. That's right. That's ridiculous. But anyway, uh, those right, are still pause. available at a Covington Pike uh, flea market. And- what that's referring to is we discussed on the uh, show we did on the week previous. They canceled the Mississippi Coliseum show on December third over an earthquake warning. Over an earthquake warning, which never happened. Yes, there was no earthquake. Yes. So Lawler was hot about that. (laughs) You know, so there's that. Yes. And this afternoon, today at about uh, 1 o'clock or 1.30, I'm going to be out there, and we're going to be doing some Polaroid pictures with people that have the shirts, and the new kids are going to be out there also. So if you want to come by and meet us and uh, have... Oh, the new kids, huh? Thing, we'll be out there this afternoon. Great. Great afternoon for it. Looks like it's going to be a nice Saturday afternoon with the sunshine out and all of that. going to be good. Um, I don't want to talk about... The, well, you, you want to talk about... Uh, I don't want to talk about... Who's, who is who's the... Well, I, now, I have an idea who put these out. I don't know. As I, as I said, Akeem, these were all over the building. They were all over the wrestling uh, areas this morning. Okay, real quick, since these are not online, as they get into the bounty posters, this did carry over to the syndicated TV. Because um, I remember following this week to week. And, you know, and we obviously did not get the Memphis show, you know, the Memphis studio show in New York, but we got USWA Challenge, which at this point is airing stuff from around the territory instead of Dallas footage. But which, okay, you were the one with all the results, you might, so you'd probably know this better than me. How many tapings were there after September, October? Just one? Because they covered weeks and weeks of TV in like that one week where they had the tournament and then they taped the next two nights in Louisville and Nashville. But there was something. So if I saw the post, so were they, they actually started doing the bounty poster in September, knowing that it would air concurrent to this in December? Um, those shows were in October. October then. But you get what I'm saying. Yes. Well, that's how long, I mean, long-term booking. Well, because what you got, the, the title tournament taping, they turned it to six weeks, right? Yeah. I think. And then, what was it, three weeks each from Louisville and Nashville? Yeah. Something like that. So they had ten weeks of TV. <sighs> I, I just, that's interesting then. I thought they did, like, one other taping past that. That would have been around this time, but I guess not. If you're saying that there's, there was no other taping after 
far as there we know, no. syndication taping after October. So you're saying between that one week and the year-end taping at the Sportatorium, there were no USWA Challenge tapings? No. As far as you know. Okay. But yeah, so that's that's interesting foresight that they had. You know? Well, long-term booking. Although, actually, they may not have done the bounty poster stuff in on-cameras. It may have only been in post-production. Well, there you go. So, I haven't seen those shows in a while, so. A $10,000 reward in, in all the dressing rooms. $10,000 reward. Well, all right, you want to take a look at it right here? Yeah. All right, uh, it says $10,000 reward. And maybe we we'll, yeah, there's a shot of it. All right, $10,000 reward, your picture, and then see that print at the bottom? You may be able to read that. $10,000 cash to any record the picture of who injures the so-called king. How about the fact that it's in Lawler's handwriting? <laughs> well, look at that picture of Lawler, too. Yeah, and it said Lawler's handwriting. I love how we never trust anyone else to do this stuff. So it's all of these things, bounty posters, awards, plaques, signs. Everything is always very obviously a Jerry Lawler uh, production. But they don't know that. The Marks don't. If they've seen the cartoons he used to do in the programs, they do. Well. $50,000 for a career-ending injury. So there's a bounty. Who, 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 who do you think put these out? Do you think... That's kind of what I think, too. What they say, Eddie Gilbert? That's what they think, yeah. Pin him down on that and see if he is, in fact, responsible for that. Let's talk about the big reunion that's going to be coming up uh, at the Mid-South Coliseum. Well, uh, we, I talked about it last week, and uh, we'll talk about it again today, but there was a little hitch. Yeah, I was going to mention in, that, in too. Between, and uh, we're going to, well, the, the answer is going to be, coming up momentarily. I think uh, most of the people realize that uh, I, I announced last week that we were going to be reuniting Steve Kern and Stan Lane, the fabulous one. That's right. I was really excited about it. Stan Lane. Uh, well, let, let, let me explain to you exactly what happened on this situation. When I first when I first heard, and you know, wrestling, we get word of uh, guys who, who uh, wrestle for other organizations. They come and they go, and you know, they wrestle in different parts of the country all the time. Well, when I heard and I got word that Stan Lane and uh, Jimmy Cornette had some problems, they were wrestling in the NWA, and they, they had some problems with the promoters there, had, I guess, a little bit of differences between Stan I'll Lane say. and Bobby Eaton. Uh, anyway, the team broke up. You know, uh, mm -hmm. the, the Midnight Express was no more. Uh, Stan Lane and, and uh, Jimmy Cornette were not with the NWA anymore, and so uh, I had just recently talked to Steve. He had been up here in the area, and I had wrestled down in Florida, and I knew that that Steve was just basically wrestling single matches down there, and the idea hit me immediately. I said, "Man, if I could, if I could get a hold of Steve and get a hold of Stan and get these two guys back together, bring them back to Memphis, that I knew, you know, we could create a lot of excitement up here." So, I first of all called Steve, and uh, he was excited about it. He said, "You know, if, if we can get a hold of Stan, I'd love to do it. I'd love to come back to Memphis because, uh, you know, this has been this is the place where the fabulous one." started and where they they had the most if we can get a hold of stan did you have to go through sal Carrenti then too <laughs> maybe success and he said he would be tickled to death so i called i called stan lane and uh you know i knew this was something that a lot of people said they would never get back together again they'd never be reunited and you know i talked I, to stan I stan even said that one time it, himself, that's so, exactly yeah. right so when i talked to stan uh at first 
uh, he said, at first he said, okay, he thought it was a good idea. But then a little bit later on in the week, I heard that uh, he was having second thoughts. I thought maybe Jimmy Cornette might have talked with him and said he didn't think it was that good of an idea. There was also talk that he and Bobby Eaton may get back together. So all of a sudden, the thing was sort of up in the air a little bit, which all of that leads me up to this interview that I received uh, this morning from Stan Lane and Jimmy Cornette. And uh, I think hopefully everybody will be pleased with their final decision. So let's watch Stan Lane and Jimmy Cornette here. See what he said. So Stan, the ball's in your court. The envelope, please. Will the Fabs be back together one more time? You bet your life we will. <laughs> you know something, Eddie Gilbert and the Memphis Mafia? What makes you think you guys are so darn tough? You know, Jimmy, Steve and I went through them all, brother, just a couple of short years ago, right there in the good old South, right there in Memphis, right there in Nashville, right there in your hometown, Louisville, Kentucky. We went through them all, the Road Warriors, the Assassins, the Moondogs, and the list goes on and on and on. And you know, a lot of people over the past years, Jimmy, said, Stan, you know, you, you left us and you've, you've gone national. You're on national cable TV, nine million homes a week. You're in the big time now, you know. Has your head gotten big? Well, let me tell you something. I'm still living right here in North Carolina. And Jackie Fargo, a guy who taught Steve and I everything that we know, taught us how to pick up chairs, taught us how to grab boards if we need to, taught us how to fight, taught us how to scratch, how to claw, how to bite if we had to, taught us how to use this, this, and these two <laughs> shoes if we have to. And you know what? Jackie Fargo lives about 20 miles from my house where I'm standing right now. He's in Kannapolis, and you and I are right here in Charlotte. We're still Southern boys, born and bred, and you know what? <laughs> All I had to do, Jimmy, was go back there in my hallway and grab these two pictures that I keep on my wall all the time, right there, the fab, the fabulous ones. And brother, all those thoughts came back to Mid-South Coliseum. <laughs> Boy, I could sit here and talk for hours about it, but let me just say this. This man right here was my partner for five years. And brother, we went through them all. And we're gonna go through them all one more time. Eddie Gilbert, the Memphis Mafia, dirty white boy and your stupid brother too you're going to be history because jim coronet the greatest manager of the sport today and stan lane and steve kern one more time are coming right there to memphis and brother we're going to do it like we've never done it before <laughs> and let me tell you so too something eddie gilbert your memphis mafia wouldn't be complete without that stinking little brat sam lowe running around he's not a manager he's a puke he makes me sick to my stomach i take it as a personal insult that a guy like that would go around calling himself after Sam Bass, one of my childhood idols. So not only are the fans back together again, not only are they standing by the side of Jerry the King Lawler, but Jim Cornette, I'm going to be right there in that corner. I'm going to keep an eye on Sam Lowe. And Lowe, if you move, if you even breathe, well, everybody's always wondered what's in this tennis racket, brother. Well, you're going to find out because I'm going to bring it down across your head so many times you'll think you're the victim of an axe murder. So Memphis Mafia, when you look down that aisle, when you're going to the ring, you see the fabulous ones back together again. You see Jerry the King Lawler. You see Jim Cornette in the racket. You've got one chance. Turn around. Leave that building. Get in your car and hightail it on out of town because remember, the life you save may be your own. <laughs> Jimmy Cornette with Stan Lane back together Monday night with Steve Kern. Uh, you, talk, you talk to Steve and uh, everything's all right, right? I've, I've talked Suddenly, three young women with very 1990 hair have materialized behind Dave and Dave. Three girls, three car girls. Sure.
But they were not there before the pre-tape. Well, no. Steve Kern, very recently, as a matter of fact, uh, I'll let you know more about that in just a few minutes, but I am just really looking forward to this. Everything is on go. Everything except the future careers of the Memphis Mafia, because just like those guys just said, you guys, all of this running around and running your mouth and all of this interfering in matches and all of these things that you've been doing are fixing to come to a screeching halt Monday night at the Mid-South Coliseum when the King and the Fabulous Ones are back together again. I can hardly wait, bro. All right, King, me right. too. Thanks for joining us here. The USWA Ring Girls are here right now. Let's take a look at the entire card. Monday night, Mid-South Coliseum. I mean, that's what they were there for at the time. They were always there when Dave went over the, the house show lineups and stuff. Mm, okay. I mean, this is a big deal. You know, yeah. the Fabs have been together since since uh, January nineteen eighty seven in Memphis. So, I mean, big time th situation here, and uh, you got, now you got Jim Cornette involved as well. He ain't been in Memphis in seven years, coming back home as a babyface for mm -hmm. a short time. Well, then they turn heel quickly because they're collecting the bounty. Yeah, that's a month away. Yeah. So you get a full month of of them as baby faces, so Lawler. Yeah. But uh, yeah, really good stuff. Really good promos there from from uh, Jimmy and and Stan and uh, yeah, I mean, you, know, you you just you get that you know those legends back in. I mean, that's a that's a, a great thing for Memphis at the time. Yeah, I love how much more Southern Stan is here. Well, he's a southern boy, Biggs. I know, but compared to how he talks on t national TV. Well, everyone assumed it was Eddie Gilbert, the guy that was put the bounty. Well, Gilbert has a different tune. We have two different clips. One from earlier in the show, one from later in the show. So let's go to uh, the one earlier in the show. Back with the crowd yelling, Weasel, Weasel. I don't get that started, Dave. I didn't get it started. The fans did. Here comes Hot Stuff Eddie Gilbert wearing the Southern Heavyweight the title. The King. Why do you leave the uh, belt over here for safekeeping? Uh, Eddie Gilbert, uh, you are putting the belt on the line, I understand. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. Wait I'm not giving these rednecks and freeloaders a free match today for the Southern Heavyweight title here on TV today. If anybody wants me to defend this belt against Jerry Lawler or somebody the caliber of him, they can pay their hard-earned money to see it. <laughs> wow. Well, here's Lawler. Whether it's the holidays or not, I don't give anything away free. Well, Eddie, Eddie Marlin had been, had been trying to set this up as, as a title match. He said he's not going to put the belts up. Eddie Gilbert is... And remember, by the way, Terry Funk is the world champion and not there week to week. So the active top title in the promotion is back to being the Southern title at the time. Yep, and Lawler's supposed to wrestle Gilbert for that title on this TV show. Saying, oh, they're gonna have to pay money if they want to see me in a title match. Hell, a chain or something hit me with it, try to take my belt here on TV. Dave, Eddie's the king, and he can do what he wants to do because he's the he's king. He's not the king. He has the championship belt, but he's not the king. The king is across the way, and we thought it was going to be a a challenge for the belt here today. As we told you earlier, Eddie uh, Marlin had told me that he was going to try to get uh, uh, Eddie uh, Gilbert to agree to put the belt up. But yeah, but Dave, mm -hmm. I. Let's go ahead and play the next clip, which is the finish of this match. Okay. 
the one down there. Let's play that one next, and then we'll come back for the other. Oh, the one after this. Yeah, let's go that one, and then come back. Okay. Okay. What? All right. So let me read. Let me read what's going on. All right. So the bounty led to speculation. Jim Cornette, who's given his bay face, is responsible for the bounty. Lawler's wrestling Gilbert in a match that technically wasn't good, but a lot of heat since both were such good psychologists, which ended with the Memphis Mafia jumping in before. Well, I got some assistance. So let's go to the clip. And yeah, that's a chain he's just hit Lawler with again. He's calling Sam. Yeah, flipped it right out of the ring. What was that he threw out of the ring? A space blanket? Dave, what match are you looking at? I'm looking at the one right there on the monitor in the ring. I didn't see any kind of chain. Or I'm not looking at the monitor. I'm looking at Sam Bass Lowe. He's got a chain in his pocket. And it's been in and out of the ring at least three times already. Hot stuff Eddie Gilbert with Jerry Lawler on the mat. It's like it's bounty collection time. Weird how Jerry Calhoun can't hear the announcers at all. Look at this! A pile driver by Eddie Gilbert as Sam Bass Lowe had the referee distracted over there. Count is one, two. Lawler's foot's on the bottom rope. That stopped the count at two. Eddie Gilbert thinks he's won it. Uh-uh. That cameraman over there picked Lawler's foot up and put it on the rope because Lawler was knocked out, Dave. Right there was Bounty. That was probably $10,000 right there, if not $50,000 for Hot Stuff, the new king. The chain is back in the ring. You see him wrapping it up on his hand? Yeah, you can see the chain clearly right there. Lawler blocks him. Lawler's got the chain now. He smacks Eddie Gilbert with it and now tosses the chain out of the ring. Come on now. Lawler pulled a chain out of his boot and threw it to that monkey-faced idiot sitting here in the audience, Dave. It makes me mad. Oh, come on, Bruno. You saw exactly what happened. Yeah, I know. Lawler I comes off the rope. Look out. Here comes Doug Gilbert, Joseph Magliano, and Tony Anthony. Why is the camera work so bad this week? They Lawler cheating. They can't abide by that. They're rule-abiding wrestlers. Oh, In the fabulous one's tights. The old school fabulous one starts with the lightning bolts. Lawler holding up Eddie Gilbert and Kurt nails him. Steve Kurt with a folding metal chair. I don't know if you can see what spray painted on it. It says the fab. Fabulous combination. Yes. Right there, Steve Kurt and the King Jerry Lawler. Lawler is going to get the victory in the match because uh, the dirty white boy, Doug Gilbert and Joseph Magliano, jumped in there to interfere. That was it right there. Guys, we need to take a break, at, uh, or we can talk to you right now if you want to, whatever you'd like to do. Steve, good good to see you. Let's, uh, let's take a break, give you a chance to catch your breath. We'll be back to talk to him in just a moment. With me. He, uh, I'm sure he'll be back in just a few minutes. It's, yeah. great, it's great to be back, Dave. Yeah, here's Tom. Here he comes. You know, while he's coming around the corner there, I had the opportunity of watching that interview sent by Stan Lane and Jimmy Cornette. And when Jerry the King Lawler called me down in Florida, he says, you're never going to believe what I'm going to ask out of you, Steve. 
He says, I'm trying to put together a couple of guys just to watch my back while I get a chance at Eddie Gilbert. He says, I'm trying to put you together with a guy. A guy that you wrestled with for years. And I'm thinking, you know, there could have been a number of guys after wrestling 17 years. And then when he said Stan Lane, and after Stan Lane has been one of the Midnight Express, after Jimmy Cornette, after all the things I've watched on the cable network, I wondered in the back of my mind, now, is this a wise decision, Steve, or not? But after about five minutes of Jerry talking to me, I said, why not? Just like Stan Lane said on that interview, yes, I'm more than happy to do this. I watched the tape of the wrestling show here last week, and I heard little Dougie Gilbert out here. And obviously when he got his hair cut and they shaved it on the side, they took a little piece of his brain out with him. First of all, Dougie Gilbert, you do not know nothing about fighting. Stan Lane, Jerry the King Lawler, and Steve Kern cut their teeth in Memphis, and it was on things like this. Chairs, boards, anything to come up. So I'm having a great time. This is a Christmas present to me, to come up here and to be able to stand in the ring with Jerry Lawler and Stan Lane again. Well, it's a great thrill for all the fans. I think it's one of the most exciting announcements we've had in a long time, and we're glad to have you here. Not to mention, I imagine a lot of the young guys watch my moves. If you guys are smart, you'll give Dave Brown a Christmas present like I did. Merry Christmas, Dave. You know, Thank you, Steve. I appreciate it. King, I know you're glad to have him here and also have Stan coming in. Well, I'll tell you, I'm tickled to death. Uh, you know, just going through the fans over here, one of the young guys came up to me and said, hey, this is the greatest thing you could have done for Memphis Wrestling. And Memphis Wrestling has been my whole life. And Steve Kern and Stan Lane are a big part of it. And especially, an even bigger part of it, is the fabulous Jackie Fargo. And I feel like this is going to be sort of a tribute to Jackie Fargo Monday night because the King and the Fabulous Ones together, once again, it's going to be the biggest night of wrestling that Memphis has ever seen. And we don't want you to miss it. That's right. One thing I want to add. You know, I left you out, Tony Anthony. You notice I didn't mention your name. The last time I was in Memphis, I got a taste of you, Tony. I sure hope you bring that woman with you with that whip because I enjoyed that more than anything I've ever had done to me in my life. Uh, Tony Anthony, as long as you oh pulled up in that ponytail, don't tighten it up too tight because I'm going to loosen your neck come December 10th, and that's a promise. All right, very good. It's going to happen at the Mid-South Coliseum. What a night it should be there as the Fabs are reunited and they'll be with the king and of course they're going to have jimmy coronet and the tennis racket as their special second too it's monday night at the mid-south coliseum we've got wrestling action coming up in uh, several places around the territory let's take a look at some of the usl was uh steve kern a wwe agent yet when the bashams got their uh, bondage gimmick <laughs> i don't know but I'm sure there are probably many people in that company that probably were in that type of stuff, so. Perhaps. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I am checking. Let's see if Wikipedia says when he was an agent. Uh, it does not. Surprisingly. Right. Well, Eddie Gilbert came back out later in the show to talk about this bounty deal and other things. So let's go to uh, hot stuff. Right now, and ladies, I apologize for this, but uh, here's hot stuff Eddie Gilbert. It's my interview time now. I'm sorry, ladies, you are not the fabulous one. We're not the fabulous one. They're coming back to Memphis. Everyone's talking about it. I thought they were talking about me at first. 
I went out everywhere this past week in Memphis, Tennessee. All the little girls who ran up to me, I thought they were coming up to me since I'm the best looking guy around town. And come to find out, they were saying, Eddie Gilbert, we're coming to see you get your rear end kicked by the fabulous ones and Jerry the King Lawler. No, you're not, sweetie. And no, you're not all you young fellas around here that look up to the King Jerry Lawler and to the fabulous one Steve Kearney, Stan Lane, and even that geek Jim Cornette. First off, I want to put the rumors about this right here to rest. I did not put a bounty. I did not put this money up against Jerry Lawler's head. It was not me. I will collect this, but I did not put the bounty up against Jerry Lawler. And if I did, I would be the first to tell you. Well, I certainly assumed you're the one that put it up, but you had nothing to I do with it. I had nothing to do with it. Many times before, you've accused me of being a liar, Dave Brown. I am not lying to you today, even though I will. I will stress this. I will collect not only the $10,000, but I will put him out of wrestling for good for $50,000 in cash. The only problem is, I don't know who to call. Jerry Lawler? One of your last days will be this Monday night, December the 10th. Like I said last week, for all you people in Memphis, Tennessee, that can't read and write, and that's just about 100% of you, get the calendar. It's two days away, 48 hours. Jerry Lawler is bringing the fabs in. Well, this is not a dedication to Jackie Fargo. This is a dedication to the one and only king, the one and only fabulous one, Hushup in Gilbert, the king of Memphis, Tennessee. Fabulous reunion, Monday night. We'll be back. He uh he went lying. Terry Fulton was the guy that had the bounty out on uh Lawler. Well, yes, and there ends up being a twist a week or two later where we start to realize he might be telling the truth because suddenly Eddie Gilbert bounty posters show up. Yep. And that is also the start of his babyface turn. Which really With, kicks when the Texas crew comes in. Yes. He's not a full babyface until uh, Texas versus Tennessee. So, there you go. Good stuff. Danny Davis missed some days, man. We went a bad knee, but was back on TV Saturday beating Joseph Macliano. All right, Miss Alcal, see him on the 10th. Drew 2,600 fans in a $10,800 gate. Yeah. I know it sounds uh, low, but that was pretty good for the time. Yeah. Because they really had dropped. Complete results. Saw King Cobra pin Jeff Gaylord. Joseph Mike Lano be Chris Champion due to outside interference from Gilbert and Anthony. Jamie Dundee over downtown Bruno. Brickhouse Brown over Black Magic, not Norma Smiley, to get back Sweet Georgia Brown. And Sweet Georgia Brown at this point is... <laughs> Jackie, right? Yes, yes. In Texas. Danny Davis over Kevin Dillinger to retain the USWA junior title. Bill Dundee over Sheik Hussein Fabiano by forfeit when he no-showed. Gilbert I th- wait, that, wait, I thought it's Sheik Hussein and Sheik Fabiano with Sheik Hussein being George Weingaroff. That's right, sorry. Well, Fabiano worked as Hussein in Puerto Rico, so. But Sheik Hussein, this, the, he, the Sheik Hussein who no-showed is George Weingaroff. Yes. Danny Davis over Kevin Dillinger retaining junior title. Building, uh, sorry, read that. Gilbert and Anthony over Jared Cody Michaels keep tag titles. That's Doug. When Michael Leonard feared. Dundee won a Buckhouse Battle Royal. Like the second Battle Royal in Memphis in, two, in a few weeks. 
And uh, Memphis Mafia beat Law in the Fast by DQ when Kern accidentally hit referee Jerry Calhoun with Cornish tennis racket in a classic Memphis brawl. The crowd was more than double what they've been averaging of late. For the return of the Fabs, or huge draws here in 8285. According to the Fabs, will be back in early January. Oh, I'll say. Hmm. Okay, so wait a second. When were the Loser Leaves Town matches where Sheikh Hussein has to leave the territory? The ones that aired on the syndicated TV. Because I obviously already left. <sighs> But I'm trying to remember, did they, which cities did they do them in? Because I want to say, like, they did one in, like, Louisville and one in Nashville, and they aired them both on the syndicated TV, but said they were specific to each city. Don't ask. Uh, I'm searching for Loser Leaves Town. Uh, November, November 12th. Well, okay, so here's the Samurai. thing. The one in Memphis, Samurai was the one who lost town, lost the fall and left town. So that, okay, so there you go. They had not done the deal where Hussein or Fabiano, I think it was Hussein, gets pinned. Oh, just knocked my phone down. Uh, gets pinned and loose and leaves town because he didn't do that in Memphis. So that's why. So that's weird too that the one who's trying to stay in town. This must be this actually. I just realized this must be when Sasazaki is trying to get his his green card or whatever, right? Well, actually, no, if it was trying to get his green card, then he would be staying. So, I don't know, actually. Maybe that, maybe this is when before he's even at that point. Maybe his work visa's run out. It's confusing. But anyway, they're all gone. At least by this point in time. Alright, let's go to... At the time, the soon-to-be owner of the USWA, Joe Pesino. Well, Kongi Sports. Well, they're not listed. It's Joe Pedicino as the owner. Okay. Backing. Not much new on the Pedicino GWF front, Dave said. But Steve Beverly has a little thing here. Pedicino is getting a daily diet of calls from wrestlers wanting to work for Global, but he's being slow on a talent selection until after the buyout of the USWA is finalized on December the 26th. Sure. Back to Dave. Ray the Cripple Stevens has been hired to work in the office. It appears three of the people, the three people in charge of booking will be Billy Eady, Eddie Gilbert, and Jeff Jarrett. There's talk of Scott Hall coming in for the first TV team, but confirmed but confirmed through a deal with Tokyo Joe Daigo that Akira Nogami, who'd been wrestling last year for Otto Vance, will come in. Nogami's on the small side, maybe 5'9", 195, but a good flyer, and some say he and Jushin Ryger have won the best three matches in the Tokyo Dome show on April 13th. Even better than Hogan and Hanson in many people's eyes. So, Jeff Jarrett's name's mentioned here, Fix, as one of the yeah. bookers. Yeah, I don't think that was actually happening. None of this was actually happening, basically. You know what I mean, though. I don't think Pedicino actually <laughs> had him in the mix. Planned mix, however you want to put it. There's been no local publicity whatsoever for the first taping in Dallas. The local USWA show didn't mention it this week, and those who have called the Bronco Bowl asking about it have been told there's no show. That's and not there good. Are no plans, and there are no plans for any wrestling in the building. That's worse. Most of the Dallas crew that work for Kevin Von Erich have been contacted up here, but they don't know nothing other than there's supposed to be a show. Now, Pettacino and Tor Berg of the LPWA preparing to co-promote a pay-per-view on April 28th at the Sands Hotel in Las Vegas with four men's matches and four women's matches, and it's all about bringing in some Japanese women for the show. 
Well, it takes a year and global's not involved, but that kind of happens eventually. <sighs> now, as far as the taping, I'm trying to remember, is it ever even explained why they moved from the Bronco Bowl to Sportatorium and also why Bronco Bowl said there was no show? Not really. Weird. Weird. I mean, has the Bronco Bowl even really had any kind of regular wrestling since the promotional war, you know, 20 plus years earlier? No. World Class never ran it. That reminds me, by the way, since I mentioned it, yeah, and for those who don't know, it was when uh, Moore Siegel died, there ends up being this war breaking out for who's going to get control of the Texas booking office for the NWA. And it leads to both Fritz and Paul Bosch running Dallas, with one running the Sportatorium and one running the Dallas, one running the Bronco Bowl, excuse me. And I Which believe. Started the heat there between them. Yes. Well, because Fritz taking the booking office, especially, because Paul thought that was his. And. If I remember right, that's the only promotional war where both are NWA members, right? Uh, yeah. And the NWA just kind of let it happen. <laughs> yeah. Well, why would they get involved? I mean, that'd be showing favoritism over another member. Hey, you guys fight it out. And it was also very unusual as promotional wars go because of the whole way the Texas had been set up differently from other territories. Yeah, because basically... Everything other than the Amarillo side was all one big talent group. It was a, it was one booking office, but the three main, you know, sub-circuits, which were Metroplex, Houston, and San Antonio, Corpus Christi, those all had their own TVs and own angles and stuff. Yeah, but they used the same talent. Right, they used the same talent, but they weren't necessarily... Which is why the Sportatorium was not a Friday night deal until they quit working with Paul Bosch. Right, because Friday night was Sam Houston Coliseum. Well, and previously the, uh, previously the Houston Rec Center, but yeah. Sportatorium was, was Sunday and Fort Worth was Monday. San Antonio was always Wednesday. Yeah. But anyway... It, <sighs> Why Why did anyone believe any of this shit? Because it's Joe Pettacino. They and he's the fans, believe, man. Well, they wanted to believe him because he's Joe. Well, Joe believed and Joe, it. And Joe believed it. Yeah. That's the thing. It was just, I mean, he was so gung-ho about it. They thought that this, I mean, who would have thought that this would have happened? What would happen happen? Well, also, we need to point out, as I think we always need to with this, even if you want to say that by 1990 standards, someone should have still realized it was a scam, you know, with Olu Oliemi and $25 million back in securities in Nigeria or whatever. That's Johnson Oliemi. Well, <sighs> Carol Lindsay, like, spoke up for him and vouched for him as someone she had done business with previously. Like, again, he was not some guy that just suddenly showed up from Nigeria. He had some kind yeah. of presence in the Atlanta business community before that. We talked about it on the Patreon show. Yes. So, patreon.com slash twin sheets. All right. Um, the destruction, this is from the torch. The destruction crew did make a verbal agreement with Global, although they probably won't start until 1991. And they never do. 
Uh, no. <laughs> Probably should have. Yeah. <clears throat> Let's stay in Texas and go to the Texas Wrestling Federation. At the Metroplex on December the 9th, from 450 fans, saw Tim Taltry and Action Jackson beat Cowboy Tony Falk and John Tatum. Angel Death over Terrence Garvin. Iceman King Parsons over California Stud Rob Price by DQ when Steve Austin interfered. Austin went to double count out with Steve Simpson. And Iceman won the 10 man battle royal. So, there's that. All right, now let's go to the AWA, and that means Way Keller. According to one source, the AWA's receptionist was given her notice, and her final day will be December 21st. Every indication is the AWA will shut down in December. There's a chance the AWA has plans to continue in different circumstances, but highly unlikely without any wrestlers. At last word, they were trying to negotiate a deal with WGN Chicago, although what they would do with the slot, if they got it, is a mystery. And there's no word on what Greg Anya plans to do if the AWA indeed shuts down, although it is suspected that Father Vern will retire. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the AWA remains a TV show deep into 91, the show on old matches. And they kept a decent amount of the syndication network at first. Yeah. I'm trying to remember how long we had it here on Sports Channel, but it was a, it was a while that they were doing those classic matches shows. Holding yeah. out hope. <laughs> classic matches and Nick Bockwinkle uh, in the wraparounds talking about his new career as an insurance salesman. Was uh, what's her name in that video on those shows too? Donna Ganya. No, the the blonde haired chick that they hired to um, do the Met Classics on their TV and like oh maybe the model. Which I looked, I looked her up, and she, like she, she still does stuff. She's from Minnesota. Okay, I can't remember her name, but yeah, very wooden, very wooden on camera, no charisma. All right, let's go to Herb Abrams UWF. They have a show scheduled on January 9th at the Penta Hotel across the street from the Mass Square Garden, a twelve hundred seat building. For TV tape and another show for January 12th at the St. John's the Baptist High School in West Iceland, Long Island. They'll have an autograph party during, the, during that week at the Royce Hotel by LaGuardia Airport and a part of the sports bar during that week. What this hasn't been officially announced, Dave believes the main event on both shows will be Dr. Steve Williams versus Mr. Wonderful Paul Lorndorf. Well, here's Herbie moving to New York. Mm-hmm. Big deal. Yep, and... I didn't know this until um, who was it that I saw say so? It was oh, I think it, maybe it was in the where was I reading it? Was it in the Gordon Scazzari article that's on Slam Wrestling about how this had been like something of a regular indie venue, which I guess means it wasn't that expensive before Herb started running there, the uh, Penta Ballroom. Don't remember seeing any results from that. I have not either. And I'm sure that was another thing that pissed uh, Vince off, too. You start running shows across the street from the Garden. Yeah, and this is, uh, now it's, it. I think it's still, or it became Hotel Pennsylvania. With Andre the Giant being uh, announced, so, yeah. Matt Watts, former Denver announcer creator George, has taken over as the play-by-play man for UWF. The George replaces Abrams as lead announcer on the TV, which airs weekly on Sports Channel America. Abrams has shit to doing wrestling reviews for the tapings. The George is expected to start at the New York tapings in January. And yes, this happens. Yeah, because Herb, Herbie and Bruno are the announcers uh, in 90. <laughs> and what announced team they were. Yes. 
at least Bruno got to talk. And boy, did he. Yes. <laughs> because he didn't talk much when uh, him and Jesse and Vince were the announcers. Nope. UWF ran his final car in Southern California on December 6th in Reseda before there were 15 fans. They said we were apparently incorrect last week in saying Dot Destiny wins advertised for the show when he wouldn't be there. According to those close to the UWF, Dot was never advertised as being there on television, although the flyer for the card did list Doc and Orndorff as the main event, according to one source. David Jesse's copy of the flyer. Another reader who was there said they went went because Williams Orndorff was scheduled as at some point as the main event, and of course Dot was in Japan. Greg Valentine was advertised and didn't appear. He was in Japan, too. But Dave believes that was no fault of Abrams because Valentine's Japan tour was almost a last-minute thing, and now Titans trying to keep him anyway, which they do. Larry's Visco and Sky the Body were also listed on the flyer, neither of whom were there, and it was sitting there negotiating with the Midnight Express, which Dave believes no contact whatsoever has been made, particularly since Cornette won't anyone called in the Midnight Express unless Bobby Eaton's involved. New here was Iceman King Parsons, the Bay Face, if he would curl the beers over the racial thing. Barry O was a heel who looked very good. And Don Morocco was supposed to be a baby face. But Russell Cattis Chatton was probably the rest of the group who was a heel, so the crowd was mixed. Tame was said to be smooth. Abrams kept himself just doing interviews, and Bruno and Craig did TV. In the angle where heel manager John Tolis and Bob Wharton injured Brian Blair's wife, Honeybee, so now Blair will be managed by Lou Albano. Steve Ray had TV matches against Ivan Koloff and Cat. This was the most over the baby faces. The injury angle that Honeybee was on the previous taping. They were just continuing it here. I just watched that TV. So, uh, yeah, like I said, just watched the TV from the previous taping before this one. And, uh, yeah, Cat, this is so over. You kind of feel bad for Jay Strombo Jr., who was, he was feuding with at the time. Because he's supposed to be babyface, and he's doing the Jay Strombo shit, and the fans aren't reacting. They're cheering for Cactus. Not good for him. What are your thoughts on the UWF t- uh, stuff this time, Bix? Honestly, I feel like the most interesting thing is Steve Ray being the most over the baby faces because, I don't know, I kind of felt this after the Dark Side of the Ring episode. And if you look back and you watch those shows, like, Herb was right to see something in Steve Ray. And for whatever reason, he was the only promoter that saw something in Steve Ray. But you know what? Like, he had a look. He could work fairly well. He had charisma. Like it, it is kind of strange that Herb is the only guy outside, of, you know, his hometown of Kansas City that ever gave him a shot. Yeah. I mean, why do you think that is? I don't know. I have no idea. And, you know, and Steve clearly recognizes that, and it's why he gets so emotional talking about Herb. Yeah. But yeah, it's interesting TV. I mean, you watch UWF at this time, and it's perfectly competent. Yeah, this like kind of like middle of the first year, or I guess like not quite middle, it's but you know, middle. This is a bit early. But like uh, after like this period after the first couple tapings, I guess we could say. I think when they go to New York, that's when kind of stuff starts changing. You know. Hmm. I don't know what that could, you know, be. I don't know what could be the reason, but connections for I mean, Herbie, Herbie's at home, I guess, and he's able to uh, probably get things easier. Maybe I don't know. That's that's what I was thinking. Yeah, 
But yeah, you watch those uh, late '90s shows, and it's a you know, perfectly competent promotion, and you know, I mean. Well, doesn't his business partner disappear from the logo at the end of the show around this time, or shortly after this? Um, I didn't pay attention. Oh, to it's Abram. It's Ab- Oh, it goes from being Abrams Ross Productions to Abrams Productions. I didn't pay attention to that. Some I someone noticed that at some point, and I made made a point of remembering it. It's after like two or three tapings, so it's around this time. So I wonder. I wonder if that had to do with any changes. You know, well, possibly. Uh, Torch at Herb will be in Tampa in the Tampa area meeting with people, possibly including Rick Rude in the coming days. Well, he does talk with Rick Rude, and I think Rick Rude works a taping, but it never airs because of the WWF contract stuff. Yeah. All right, let's go to Portland. Top Gun didn't appear on the December 8th show in Portland because Don Owen announced that his mother passed away while he was wrestling in Iraq. And he was wrestling in Iraq. And would start next week. Brad Anderson called him a coward for missing the match, and Owen put Anderson in with a masked man who was wearing a Beetlejuice shirt. About 30 seconds into the match, Don Koss said he thought the masked man was Jesse Barr, Juice's older brother. Anyway, about 50 minutes to the saw match, Steve Dahl came in for commentary and said after Anderson pulled the guy's mask off, that it's Jimmy Jack Funk, not wearing a Lone Ranger mask. Then Koss goes, you're right, it's Jimmy Jack Funk. Anderson was DQ for clotheslining Jimmy Jack Funk with a bull rope and left him laying. Then the ring announcer said, which is probably Don, the winner of the match, Jesse Barr. <laughs> well, later, Jimmy, Jesse, whatever you want to call him, says he won't be back to get revenge next week, but Top Gun will. So there you go. <laughs> Scott what Dyer. does he end up wrestling as after this, now that he's uh, Jesse, back at home? Jesse, Jesse Barr. That's what I thought. Sky buying Steve Dobby, Al Madrill, and Doug Masters. Barr saw over a dirty white boy, Bobby Blair, by DQ, and Madrill had saw with a gimmick, and white boy pinned them, but Scotty told referee Sandy Barr to reverse the decision. John Rambo with Equalizer by DQ, and Equalizer straddled them on the top row. The main event was a Funkhouse stampede, but went off TV. Highlight was the grappler, bringing out two gallons of milk, and some cereal, and it wound up all over the ring. The Breakfast Club. This is not on YouTube? It says it was off television. They did. No, that definitely aired. The whole reason they did it was so it could air on TV. Well, they, just, they did that stuff in promos, too. But is this the first Breakfast Club thing? Or? I don't know if it's the first. Oh, wait, no, the they, first one was with uh, Brian Adams. Yeah, the first one would have been in 1989. Or 80, yeah, 89, because Nord was there. And according to Grappler, it was to the idea of having a wrestler covered in liquid if you couldn't April have blood. 8th, April 8th, 89's TV is the first appearance of the Breakfast Club gimmick. Okay, and that's the one that's on YouTube. Yeah. Presumably. So there you go. Funny way of getting around that. It's an idea. <laughs> Equalizer, of course, Equalizer Dave Sullivan, put Dahl on a bear hug during the interview, so Dahl was in the battle roll with tape ribs. Sure. So there's Portland. Sky the Body's Babyface is definitely something to watch because the fans, you know, he'd been that heel for so long, but he was a cool heel. They love cheering for that motherfucker. And he was great as Babyface doing the Sky the Body gimmick, too. Hmm. Now, by the way, I don't know why I'm hearing an echo from you, by the way, since you're using your regular headset. Um, now it's better. 
is this the first time? Well, is this the first time Jesse Barr has been back in years? Uh, yes. Like, has he been back since like '85 or whenever he left? '84. Uh, '83. If I'm not mistaken, uh, he um because he went to work in the South. Was was it Florida first, or was there something before Florida? Oh no, he was working. Uh, all right, let me let me do the Portland thing first. See, unless I went to Portland. All right, he did work in Portland '85. Although uh, there's only and, one and, result and on KHS. He was there with uh, when Brody on Brody and the Road Warriors three show tour. Yes, I see that. So the last, so that's the last time he had been Florida, there. '88. And he worked as Jimmy Jack Funk and Jesse Barr. Okay, I see that now as I scroll in up. April and May, and one match in June. Okay, so he has, but he has been back. Yeah, but no, he came. No, when he when worked in the South, you know, he was in. Uh, he were Memphis, and he came back to Portland. Then he went to work in Georgia as Mister um, Wrestling. Yeah, and never unmasked because he got hurt. What they did, what he did unmask, he just never wrestled. What they did was, he got hurt, so he sat at ringside while Bob Root wrestled his match for him. So wrestling two would beat Bob Root, and then Barr as Mister Wrestling would unmask in the ringside. Mm. Did they, so? Had they previously acknowledged though that Jimmy Jack Funk was Jesse Barr? I'm pretty sure they probably did. Okay. All right, let's close out with the World Wrestling Federation. They taped TV on December 11th in Tampa. We saw the Nasty Boys debut with no change in either outfit, name, or gimmick. That was interesting. Because they were on WCW television at the same time as they're debuting here. And they're exa- everything's exactly the same. It's so unlike WWF to do that. You know? So unlike them. Not even a new name or new gear. It was just adding... Jimmy Hart in the motorcycle helmet. And the music. Yeah. Which had better music in WCW. That's better. That's another story. Another newcomer was the Mongol. All I know about him is a wrestler from Europe. J.W. Strong, Jeff Warner, not as J.W. Storm, but under a similar sounding name, got a trial against Red King. King looked much better. It's pretty much agreed that he's got a lot of potential and he's nowhere near ready, but since they got nowhere to send him, they may keep him anyway. Yeah, Jerry Storm's around for a minute, too, with them. Like, he's still working there in 92, I think. Ooh. I'm not I sure. A, I think he does a garden show in 92. But anyway, George Steinman was at the taping, which drew 11,500. Shook hands with Mr. Perfect and Bobby Heated. Sardin Slaughter's now becoming friends with Saddam Hussein, so they say as they give him the big push for the Royal Rumble. But this taping is known for something else. And uh, real quick, you were right. He does work taping. He does work a bunch of shows in 91 and 92, but he's not like consistently there throughout. No. In the MSG match against Hercules? Uh, Rick Martel. Okay, I thought it was one against Hercules. No. Nope. Anyway, the sad part of the taping was during a squash match with the Rockers. A jobber named Chuck Austin suffered what was the first to believe a broken neck. Brother photos were never aired because it was so violent looking. As the weekend, Austin was only able to move his toes for a short time was in critical condition. Yep. That's it. The Chuck Austin situation here. 
Yeah. Um. Okay. You've seen the clip, right? Absolutely. It's on on Dark Side of the Ring. And it's from what was it? American Journal was the show he was on. Yeah, I've seen it. It aired on Dark Side of the Ring, but I've seen it before. Yeah. I mean, do you agree with the assessment of most wrestlers who have talked about it that he either had no idea what he was trying doing or was deliberately trying to take the wrong bump, or both? I think that's what it looks like. I think it's a combination of both. Yeah. It looks like he is deliberately trying to take a flip bump or a bump on his head. Yeah. Um, but like, it's so weird because, like, okay, his lawyer, when I did an article about this, told me he was under the impression that, at least, you know, from what he remembered, that Austin went to Cliff Sheets' school and that by the by this point that that was a reputable wrestling school. But how long had Cliff Sheets been around by this point? Not very long. That's the thing. Um, so I questioned that. Plus, if you watch the American Journal or whatever it was, um, it's in the narration. It's not from showing his interview, but they talk about him like uh, while he's this rookie wrestler opening a school and training guys and running shows, you know? Yeah. So I just. <sighs> It's not to say WWF had no negligence because they should not have been booking all these unvetted, barely trained guys, you know? Yeah. But he was more at fault than the jury was led to believe. I think we can agree, right? Yeah. Um, what was the other thing I was going to say with that, though? Now, how often had Jannetty been using the rocket dropper before this? Uh- it, it wasn't very long. Because... I, yeah, I just... I don't, I don't remember him using a whole lot before that. Because, I mean, the thing is, is that the way Janetti tells the story, when you're able to find clips, like, all the clips from after this, like, it's how Janetti talks about telling him to take the move. You know, hold on to this, protect yourself with your arms, blah, blah, blah. Austin's story is that Janetti wanted him to not use his arms to break his fall, which I just... It's Marty Jannetty, but I just, I don't buy that on Austin's part. I don't buy that he told him to take it the wrong way. Now, I'd be curious to find a rocker dropper from before this to see if there was anything different, but I haven't been able to. I've never looked super hard, but at least, you know, in searching for, like, isolated clips, all the isolated clips you can find are after this. But, I mean, it's a sad situation, and... Thankfully for WWF, it was something of a wake-up call. That was that was more the lawsuit than this, though. I mean, this kind of started it, but it was more it was more losing the lawsuit that led to them to really focus on on being more careful with booking job guys. But even then, you know, right after right after this is when the Hardys first get on TV without any real training yet. Yeah, because they were able to you know ride along with Dallin Stallion. So it's not perfect, but it's that after after that is though is pretty much the end of ever having like your untrained job guys on TV. It's pretty much all like reputable independent wrestlers from that point on. Yeah. So yeah, just just shitty situation. Um, I almost feel like the sound he makes is worse than it look than 
that's the scarier part more than how he looks going in, into the mat. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, he's still get, he's getting dropped on his head, but it doesn't look it doesn't necessarily look that much worse than other stuff we've seen that did not paralyze someone. Yeah, but it's the combination of that with the sound and like hearing how he hits and what it does to the ring that really just shows just how bad it was. Yeah. Um, another team matches were a non-squash variety. Dark matches Ultimate Warrior over Randy Savage by count when Savage simply walked out of the ring. Three and a half stars. Ricky Marks over Jake Roberts by DQ. One star. Bossman over Bobby Heenan in 17 seconds. Dud. Sawyer over Duggan with Adnan interfered. Negative two stars. Hulk Hogan over Earthquake with a leg drop. Two stars. They continue to push the eventual Virgil Babyface turn. And during a Brother Love segment, Brother Love asked Hogan about possibly having to fight Tugboat in the Royal Rumble. Planting that seed. Which goes nowhere. We talked about it in the show. We never got a Hulk Hogan t- Typhoon singles match. Period. There wasn't even a turn on Hogan. Nope. Very weird. They take challenge the next night in West Palm Beach. Nothing, no, pretty much. As uh, J.W. Strong did a job for Shane Douglas in the dark match. Boston beat Heen in a quickie. Undertaker beat Tugboat clean in the middle. Kerry Von Erick beat Miss Perth by DQ. Rip Marks over Jake by DQ. And Warrior Pin Savage. So I was watching the TV this week and a Virgil turn on DiBiase is in the works. If the NWA ever, NWA ever did something as racist as DiBiase's comments, quote, there's only one thing lower than a Texan and that's you, Virgil, unquote. And have Virgil shine his shoes, they'd have a lynch mob after him. Titan has no excuse for running that crap like, like that as entertainment in 1990. Oh, don't worry. We're about to get in. We're going to, we're going to be playing that in just a minute. Is lynch mob really the example you want to use as the colloquialism, <laughs> colloquialism there? Yeah. D- 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 yeah. Dave should have probably thought better. But I get what you're saying. Honky Tonk Man debuted on Superstars as a commentator with Vince Man Roddy Piper. He seemed totally intimidated by Piper to the point the show was the weakest from a commentary standpoint since Piper joined the show. And Steve Beverly noted that uh, he felt the combo was the worst mix they've had yet. Vince honestly tried to bring out Honky, but Piper appeared to intimidate him, and Honky did not offer either humor or much of an energy level in his role. All right, well, let's see how this started, how Honky was uh, brought out here. As uh, this episode of Superstars uh, went on the air. That's the intro with Warrior and the lasers and all that. Well, the music's like a knockoff of the Warrior thing. This is a superstar! Say that again? It's the warrior theme, but not exactly m- minor differences. But I mean, it's extremely similar. Also, I think this is one of the very last episodes where it's superstars of wrestling, right? No, nope. When's the actual change then? That goes through ninety-one into early ninety-two. Okay. So wait, so the ones of these that were on the WWE Classics website, did they have the graphics reworked or something then? Yes. yes. Okay. That I I hadn't I don't know how many of those I had seen, so I didn't realize. 
So, oh, is it that the banners in the arena at this point are, don't say of wrestling anymore? Correct. So that's why they started in, in late 90 for those. Mm-hmm. Okay, because they could change the graphics easily and didn't have to blur the banners. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's a wrestling! Welcome, everyone, to the superstars of wrestling, only in America, only in the World Wrestling Federation, can one be surrounded by an individual who wears a kilt? And another one who's a reincarnation of Elvis himself. For the first time, the National Choir is right. He lives. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I know all my fans want to hear me sing and see me dance, but they won't get any of that this week because this is my broadcasting debut. Wow, huh? That'd be cool. Rowdy, Rowdy, Rowdy Piper, you were going to say that? Well, I'm just saying that it's wonderful to have you here, and I'm just trying to hear that. Take notes. There seems to be a couple of things missing. It's my guitar and your shirt. <laughs> this week on the Superstars of Wrestling, Jake the Snake Roberts, Target Slaughter, the tag team of the Bushwhackers, Brother Love Guest will be Dustin Rhodes, and also in competition, the Earthquake, along with the Big Boss Man. Oh, yeah. I mean, that is totally the warrior theme, just with in different keys. But anyway, yeah, Honky didn't last long in this spot. He just, when you watch the show, and I mean, he just, Piper just steamrolls him. He had a longer run as an announcer the second time, even, and that wasn't long either. Exactly. All right, well, let's go to Dustin Rose on Brother Love, which, uh, Brings out Ted DiBiase and Virgil. So let's go to that, shall we? Standing by right now, Brother Love. Honky, I think you're going to enjoy this. This is my favorite part. Brother Love. As you say, you've got a hair cream. A little dab of do you. about a young man who's really making his way up the ladder of success here in the WWF. You have to think of this young man, Dustin Rhodes, son of Dusty Rhodes. That's the son, son, of a, son of a son of a son of a plumber, is that what he said? Something close to that. You know that I'm a man of love, and you know 
that I'm a very generous man. Huh. Now, Dustin Rhodes, I know that there's been a lot of bad blood and water under the bridge between me and you and your father. But I'm here to make you an offer. I'm here to forget all about that and make you an offer. Why? Because I think you've got potential, kid. And it's a very generous offer, Dustin Rose, considering the fact that you're a Texan. Because you see, as far as the Million Dollar Man is concerned, there is no lower form of life than a Texan, except maybe my bodyguard, Virgil. Oh, no. But the fact remains, I'm gonna offer you a lot of money. Why? Because you were able to last 10 minutes a punk kid like you, a Texan like you, to last 10 minutes in the ring with a man of my caliber, that is really doing something. Especially because I wasn't trying as hard as I could. Oh. I didn't think it was necessary. And when I left the ring, you were flat on your back, you were counting the ring lights. But we'll forget all about that. You've got potential. And all I want you to do is a very simple job. I mean, any moron could do it. I know you Texans can't walk at you bubblegum at the same time, but any moron can do it. Even Virgil here can oh, do it. Oh, come on, give Virgil, Virgil a break. I'm perspiring. Virgil does what he's told to do. Now you see, I think you can handle that. But keep watching. Virgil, my shoes. While you're down there, Brother Love Shoe. Yeah, Brother Love Shoe. Thank you, this is ridiculous. Now, you see, isn't that easy enough? I mean, you can handle a job like that. Virgil, the money. Kid would probably do it for nothing. Now, there it is, kid. There's more money right there than most Texans see in a year. Now, all you have to do is take this money. That's the first installment, kid, on your financial future. All I'm really trying to say is I want to buy you, Dustin Rhodes, just like I bought your old man's manager. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, come on. Get him. Get him. Look what's happening. I can't believe the kid didn't take the money. Virgil all over Dustin Rhodes.
Interesting segment there. Carrie Von Eric making the save for Dustin Rhodes. You know, Did Dusty the- work the taping? Uh, I don't think he did. That would have been Rochester. Uh, let's see. Rochester on uh, November 19th. Uh, nope. 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 In fact, Dusty, Dusty works Providence on November 21st. He works Scranton on November 18th. The two weeks, the two nights, he doesn't work on the TV tapings. Hmm. Interesting. So is this? You know, you know why that is. I'm sure. Hmm. He, he don't have no squash weight victories. Yeah. But not even a dark match. Yeah. So is the is this really just to? Even though it's based off the Piper DBRC and Carry Perfect issue, is what they're doing here to try to create a connection between Carrie and DiBiase for when that happens? Yes. Okay. I'm pretty sure. To make it more than just a pair of single seats. Yes. Okay. Also, this is the most obvious, like, physicality I've ever seen in terms of Carrie having one foot. Uh, yeah. The way he's walking, the way he fa- he falls down at one point. Yeah. Um, honestly, it's kind of amazing they didn't reshoot this. Him, because also, it's, he jumps the gun on his promo, too. So it probably wasn't just the foot. Um, there was probably some other stuff going on. But I feel like usually when you watch Carrie stuff from after the amputation, it's there if you look for it, but it's honestly pretty impressive, and he actually does hide it fairly well. Here he did not. No. Here he, he, like, if you watch that and you didn't know, and then someone told you, oh yeah, he actually only has one foot, you'd be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Andre the Giant was announced on TV as turning for the Royal Rumble. That won't happen. Just like the Honky Top Man was also announced for a Rumble. That didn't happen either. Nope. Andre being announced on TV the same week that he's on Herb Abrams' television is also interesting. WF is now doing customized opens and closes for all their syndicated shows for the New York market. Although they won't admit it, it's obvious that it's a reaction to the steady ratings increase in WA's had on WPIX doing a customized show. So WF wants to make it appear that in their home market that they're also going to do a customized show for New York. Even though they're not billing it differently, they're just doing a new wraparound. Yeah. It's the same show. So wait, this is the week that Andre first appears on UWF? It's it's not the week he first appeared, but he's on there. So the, is this the the week of the pre-tape or the in or the live promo? <clears throat> uh, he's he does a pre-tape promo talking about how uh, he's going to be in UWF because UWF has the best wrestling. This is the pre-tape. Wait, is this Captain Lee Porter watched, or is this something I just else? Watched that last week. No, it's just a little blurb. He's in front of a UWF backdrop. It's like name it. 30 seconds. So, okay, so it's not on YouTube. It's not either of the ones that's online. Okay. Yeah, same 30 seconds. It's one. It's a, It's going to a commercial break. It aired on the, uh, I think, December 6th. Okay. Episode, episode of uh, UWF on Sports Show America. You know, with hindsight, that's probably more what set Vince off about Herb than anything else. Yes. 
Oh yeah, him using Andre was. I mean, that's that was what pissed him off. And you know what's extra interesting about it? Like, Vince made the deal with Baba for Andre to go to all Japan to try to keep Andre in his good graces. Yeah. Although, had the deal actually been made when the Abrams stuff was taped? I'm pretty sure, yes. And Vince, and then they were going to use it for the Rumble. So he wanted him to, I guess, get, you know, not be rusty. But I don't think he announced him for the Rumble until they had made a new deal after the Abrams stuff. Obviously not, because it's scaring concurrently. Right. And UWF is presumably on a bigger production lag. So, I, I, I'm just trying to figure out, though, what what was Andre's issue that, I mean, he happily did the All Japan tours, or was his feeling that Vince should have got, even though Andre was fine with touring Japan, maybe was his feeling that Vince should have gotten him some kind of gig that did not involve him having to fly 14 hours? When using him. But I'm saying, like, why is he angry at Vince? No, but I'm saying... He wanted to be used, Bix. He wanted to be on shows. But the All Japan thing was supposed to be the solution to that. That's my point. That's the reason he cut the deal. That's what I... That's what I just asked. (laughs) It's it's not America. He wanted to be on America. uh, uh, He wanted to be in shows in in, in America. And you know what? Honestly, well, that's what I was about to say. Knowing how much of this was him wanting to be around the boys, it's probably more that it's not like All Japan has anyone that he really knows personally outside of Hanson at this point. And the Funks? And I guess Spot... Spot, Well, the Funks are only in for the tag tournament, though. But still... Or Terry, at least. But... And... And Spivey, I guess. But... Still, it's not like... I mean, I guess he could hang out with... You knew Gordy and Doc? There's a new Japan. Where did he know Gordy and Doc from? He... Worked against Gordy in Georgia. Oh, yeah, he did. Oh, and actually, did he do a shot in Dallas with him, too? Uh, in a tag? No, I think it was him and Iceman against Super Destroyers. Okay. I mean, it's possible. Well, he, he worked other Dallas shots. Yeah, he did cross pass in world class because he was in a match with him in the, after the, the turn. Yeah. So, and he worked on Mid-South shows with Doc in 83. Well, you know, 83. So, I mean... I don't know if they were necessarily friends, though. Like I know, but they knew each other. Yeah. So. And also, right. I mean, potentially he could socialize with the New Japan foreigners, too. And Bill Eadie's, you know, going to be around and stuff. And that's someone he used to go to Japan with plenty. So. Don't have primetime ratings for the tent, but All-American on the 9th at 2.1, so it's still in the dumper. The dumper? I don't think that's what that word means, Dave. I don't know if it even meant that. I don't know if in 1991 people were using dumper the way they would now, but I don't think they did. The, I, uh, I definitely don't think they were using it the way he means. And uh, I do have the primetime rating in MatWatch, which is uh, it did a 2.7 with a 4.1 share, 1.46 million viewers. Uh, that put it behind World Championship Wrestling, which was a 2.9, 6.1 share, 1.5, uh, excuse me, 1.61 million viewers. But main event was the winner for the week. Uh, 3.1 rating. Earlier in the show. Yes, but comparatively, you know, if we're giving the ratings now. 3.1 rating, 5.6 share, 1.74 million uh, viewers. So. All right. Uh, I pulled off Channel 69 Atlanta. 
the station that runs Joe Petticino's fiance's Bonnie Blackstone's wrestling block. But unlike the NWA, they're moving to a stronger station. The NWA put off the station, but has no station in that area to run syndicated shows. And we go to Matt Watch. WF landed the key Saturday slot for superstars on WXIA, the NBC affiliate in Atlanta, and will move Challenge to WATL, the Fox affiliate, the former home of Joe Petticino's uh, superstar wrestling block. Mm-hmm. So, yes. Now, Superstars does not last long on Channel 11, WXIA. Where does it move to? Um, I think it just goes completely away from Atlanta. Because I remember at one point in time for quite a while there, the only way I was able to see Superstars was, on, was from on Macon. Mm. So why didn't they switch WATL to Superstars? Because they didn't. Because they knew they would get another state, better station eventually. Well, here's the funny thing. Um, like looking at the TV listings, it's on Fox Five. Well, at that point in time, it was CBS. It was a Channel Five CBS affiliate on December thirtieth. Uh, let me see. Yeah, I did nineteen ninety one. Yeah, by it's date. on Channel Five. So it doesn't move to Channel 11. So Steve got that wrong. Oh, so it never moved to Channel 11. So Channel 5 at 11 a.m. That's in January. It's it's still on Channel 5 in August. Yeah, so... So it never moved in the first place. But we did lose it eventually. Um, It's on Channel 5 at the end of the year? It went to 69. That's right. At the end of the at the end days of the Petticino block, it was on sixty nine. It was before Challenge. You had a back to back run on Saturday night of Superstars and Challenge. I think we were the only market probably to have that. <laughs> I can't think of any other market that has Superstars and Challenge running back to back that we know of. There might have been others, you know. But after he... the Petticino block ended, yes, there was no more Superstars in Atlanta. Uh, what am I looking at here? Okay, so, okay, I jumped ahead a little. By May 92, it's that block on 69. Uh, I'm doubling back a little to see if I can figure out when that starts. Yeah, because after the the block goes away in the fall, that's it. Fall of 92? Yeah, after October the 3rd. That's the last day. Okay, by April, it's 69. Go back. And it aired, it aired at 3 in the morning, too. Yeah. Okay, it was February was 6. Well, not at this point, it wasn't 3 in the morning. I'm talking about yet. October. Yeah. That's at this end. point, it's at the, when it goes there, it's leading off the block. It's 8 o'clock, yes. Then challenge right after. Where it's WWF Challenge, Superstar, WWF Superstar, WWF Challenge, GWF Major League Wrestling, Pro Wrestling This Week, which I guess is Pro Wrestling 92, or... Whatever it was, yes. So when do they actually make the jump? So, yeah, well, also, they're making this mid-season move, too. You know? Um, So I wonder what led to that in the first place. Maybe they were going to move to Channel 11 and it got canceled and they got a reprieve for a few months? Well, no, but it's over a year. What am I talking about? So... Yeah, I have no idea. Okay, February February 15th, it's on 69, but not at the beginning of the block... I don't ever remember being on Channel 11. So, I've uh, almost I'm, pinned I'm, it down, though. Uh, it was on Saturday Night's Main Event. It was on Channel 11, of course. But. So, 
Okay, January 26th? That's on 69. So it's in January that the move happened. Okay, that looks like the first one, because there's nothing for January 19th. Yeah. yeah. So January 5th, uh, 92 is the last time it's on Channel 5. Nothing on the week of the night. Nothing on the night. Excuse me, the 19th. Then the 26th, it's on uh, the Pedicino Blackstone uh, block, which... <sighs> You know, when they have an, there was an ad for an Omni show, you know, tonight, the Omni on January 5th, and it says, it doesn't mention anything, it doesn't mention that the station is changing, which is interesting, you know, like, you would think they would, and that was Hogan Flair, too. Hogan Flair, Brett Mounty, uh, LOD, Natural Disasters, were your top three matches. Tickets 13, 11, and 9 to show how much things have changed. Not just the prices, but how close the prices were to each other. So, so <laughs> yeah, so the, nothing happens immediately here. <laughs> Everything stays put. Nassau Coliseum on the 7th drew 8,000 fans. Jim Powers with Bob Bradley, one star. Martell made Dustin Rhodes submit, one star. Snook of a Warlord, dud. Heart Foundation on Power and Glory by DQ, two and a half stars. Tugboat over Dino Bravo, negative two stars. Bossman of a Barbarian, three stars, and Warrior of a Macho by Countout, three and a quarter stars. At least we have an Observer correspondent for ones who actually likes the Bossman Barbarian matches. Yeah. Columbus, Ohio on the 7th. Drew a side of 8,100. As Shane Douglas beat Black Bart. Virgil of a Dusty Rose in 38 seconds. Sardisar over Duggan. Hawk over Kato. Carry over Perfect with Piper's referee. Samba Simba over Buddy Rose. Davy Boy over Haku and Hogan over Earthquake. Boston Garden on the 8th drew 8,000 as Martell made Dustin Rose submit. Gennetti beat Demolition Smash. Tubbutt over Bravo. Warlord over Snooka. Boston over Barbarian. Hearts over Power and Glory by DQ. Earthquake over Hogan by Countout when Bravo interfered to something Hogan's. Hogan Tubbutt versus Earthquake Bravo next month. San Antonio drew 5,000 fans on the 8th. Where Shane Douglas pinned Black Barton. The best match on the card, one person joked. Douglas, a few months back, used to like Ricky Morton. Now he's saying it looks like Dick the Bruiser. Yeah, well, he hit the drugstore. Birds over Dusty in 45 seconds, clean the middle as a first-rate burial. Warrior over Macho by Countout. Hawk over Kato. Care of a Perfect with Piper's Referee. Sawed over Duggan. Saba Silver Buddy Rose. Dave Boy over Haku. Orlando drew 6700 on the 10th. Sean over Smash, two stars. Crush is injured, not sure what the injury is. Tubbutt over Bravo, negative three stars. Warlord over Snooker, quarter of a star. Earthquake over Boston by countout, two stars. Valentine now back with blonde hair over Dustin Rose, quarter of a star. Uh, Boston over Heenan in 14 seconds, and after the match, Barbarian attack Bossman. Martell over Jake by DQ, three stars. Hearts over Power and Glory, two stars. And uh, notice that next show must be TV taping because the top four bouts of Hogan Earthquake, Stretcher Match, Warriors, Cyrus, Cage Match, Piper Perfect, DBIC, and Carrie. Gobbity Gooker were. Orlando, he got, his, got some cheers when he came out. Lukewarm, no reaction on the ring. It was booed when he left. Then Dayton on the 13th or 3200 is Sean over Smash. Um, same as Dave, same Davey Warlord arm wrestling scenario. Boston over Heenan, 14 seconds and a dud. Care over Perfect by DQ, one star. Dino over Shane Douglas, star and a half. Salt over Duggan, half a star. Davey over Warlord, one star. Warrior over Savage by count out, two stars. Minneapolis drew 
7,400 on the 14th. Lauder's House of Minneapolis in a long time. Bravo Pin Tubboat, negative two stars. That results as Tubboat's in a phase down or roll change. Davy over Warlord Dud. Douglas over Bart, one star. March over Jake by DQ, star and a half. Carry over Perfect by DQ, three stars. Boston over Henning in 10 seconds. Heenan in 10 seconds. Dud. Sean over Smash, two stars. Hogan over Earthquake, one star. Thoughts on the hot show programs? I mean, it's better than the 90 stuff we did on the last time. These shows are yeah. definitely more attractive than that. And some of them are drawing better. Um, not all. <laughs> Nassau did half a house. Boston did half a house. What would the capacity be at Freeman Coliseum? Uh, Roughly. Um, I don't know. It's up my head. But I don't think fifty-one no, five, or 5,000 there is bad. Uh, Orlando, 6,700. I guess that would be at the Arena. That's okay for this era. Dayton, 32. Not great. Minneapolis was best in a long time, so there's that. So it's it's a mixed bag, but as far as, you know, these actual lineups, you know, we got, you know, on one crew, Warrior Savage, Bossman Barbarian, Hearts, Power and Glory. I mean, that's not a bad top of the card. Um... You know, carry perfect with Piper's referee, Hogan Earthquake. I mean, even to a point, Slaughter Duggan in terms of name value is pretty good. You know, Virgil Dusty at least at least the DiBiase issue. Um, so you've got much more compelling stuff on top here than you did a couple months earlier. So you can you can see why there's some improvements in how they're drawing because things had really bottomed out over the summer. You know, like, as much as everyone talks about, you know, just how much everything bottoms out in, like, 92, 93, you know, to a point even 94, like, the signs, and really in both promotions, because WCW thought that they were doing well at houses, but were, they did worse, like, summer 90 is really the beginning of everything. Yeah. But it's just, there are spurts where they start to do better, and then the scandals, and just the tides and everything cause everything to just fall off a cliff in 92, 93. Yeah. Again, though, I'm glad someone liked Boss Man Barbarian because I get kind of sick of of uh, reading people hating on that stuff in newsletters. In the, in the newsletters, I should say. Nashville's first program in January would be with the Bushwhackers. So, a lot of tag teams got the Bushwhackers. So... On their first, certainly on their first house show programs, generally. And Matt Watch has Vincent Man uh, will be allowed to bring his ring back and hold matches at the Nappy Convention on January fourteenth uh, to the eighteenth in New Orleans. Last year, Nappy banned the ring on the display floor, but no people missed missed it, so they're bringing it back. Yeah, that How was a thing. <laughs> How about that? Yeah, I mean, so now there are. Let me. Okay, let me play this, actually. So, this is, you know, this is from 86, but just to get an idea of what it was like, let's going to play this that I have. First, this is some ABC News Raw footage here, and it's setting up, I think it's Matt Bourne, Tony Garea, with Jesse and Okerlund on live commentary, and then there's an interview with Vince that cuts in, so. And here's a bullet here at Nappy this afternoon. From Auckland, New Zealand, he is a former five-time co-holder of the World Wrestling Federation Tag Team Championship belts. 
Whoops, I did not mean to do that. I will skip ahead to Vince or something then. Maria. A long fall pop. There's Vince. Okay. McMahon, what, uh, what is the role of wrestling in a convention like this? What do you guys do? Entertain. That's exactly what we do. That's what we do at an arena. That's what we do at a convention like this. Uh, that's why at this booth uh, you will see nothing but jam-packed people. In other booths you won't see too much traffic. How would this stack up against all the other kinds of product shows that they sell at this convention? Uh, I would say we do extremely well in terms of the television ratings that we get. Uh, we just did a 10-point uh, Five on the last Saturday night main event for NBC, which is the highest late night rating in over three and a half years. It's indicative of what our overall ratings are doing. We're very, very proud of it. So wrestling, the popularity of wrestling hasn't peaked yet. Um, well, certainly not in the World Wrestling Federation. Wrestling has always been around for years and years, but the World Wrestling Federation has it, and it's our brand of excitement uh, uh, that garners the numbers. And it definitely has not peaked yet. The, uh, is this exactly? Whoa! Is this? I was going to ask. This is exactly what we'd see if we went to one of these matches, but I can see it's the same. Um, uh, somewhat. Uh, more, more of demonstrations actually here than than all-in-out uh, competition. We hear a lot of adjectives used to describe the shows being sold here. Dynamic exciting, zany, whatever. How would you describe this this program? Uh, I really think it defies description, honestly. I mean, there's something here for everyone, and it's just a World Wrestling Federation that pretty much speaks for itself. Thank you. Thank you. And that's called... What do you think of that, huh? That's called, that's called a beautiful belly-to-belly suplex, right, Ogerlin? Uh, that was uh, very well executed by the former amateur. I love Vince uh, doing the I really don't like these questions you're an- you're asking me smile after each answer <laughs> which was a trademark of his in this era yeah. uh but yeah I I'm trying to remember if I know when they stop cuz obviously they get it back for 91 <sighs> There's a WWF magazine that has pictures from Anatty I think 91 is the one but I I don't think they go that much further in the 90s in having the ring in the live matches. Um, so, should I, I guess I'll also play real quick. I have Jesse Ventura in 89. Yeah, ABC. Yeah, there's all this talk about the reality programming in television. It's the big thing in television this year, the crime shows and the tabloid shows. Would wrestling fall into the category of reality programming? Uh, I don't know if it falls into reality programming, but I know it falls into probably the best entertainment value for your dollar you can have. I mean, this year we finally got a Super Bowl that somebody could sit back and find enjoyment with on the edge of their chair, but it's been the first one in five years, and the great thing about pro wrestling is in our major events like WrestleMania and the pay-per-view, things like that, the people always, I think, walk away with their money's worth, you know, because we have so many different bouts to offer that if one bout maybe doesn't live up to expectations, another bout will exceed those expectations, and so that's why I think uh, pro wrestling is, for the entertainment dollar, is the greatest thing going. Uh, I know you've heard this question a million times, but uh, maybe a little violent? I don't think so. I don't. I think that all contact events or sports are violent. You know, uh, I don't know how you could possibly worry about wrestling if you watch children's cartoons on Saturday morning. That's more violent than this. I think so. 
<laughs> Do you watch those cartoons? Well, I have to because I have children. So uh, they get up on Saturday morning and eat their cornflakes or whatever and tune it in. But uh, I don't think that wrestling is, uh, is uh, uh, the violence is anything to worry about because it's a controlled violence. So it's uh, wholesome entertainment for the whole family or what? I think so. I think so because as a child, uh, if you remember back when you were young, everyone had heroes that they grew up with. And lots of times they're comic book characters who don't truly exist. But in wrestling, they can have the, the same type hero worship with people that they know live and breathe and maybe once a month can come to their town and they'll see them in the flesh. So I don't find anything adverse to that at all, okay. especially from a children's standpoint. My kids watch, I guess because of my background, my kids cheer for the rule breakers. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks a lot. Okay. breakers. There we go. Jesse is so much better than Vince in this setting. Good lord. And he, his Minnesota accent is uh, as thick as ever there. Well, it's Jesse, yes. yes. <laughs> well, and also, this is a point where, especially, like, he's clearly not, like, on as the body to the degree he would be if it was an actual wrestling show. Or yeah. Or maybe a different setting as far as an interview. So he sounds a little bit more like the real guy than the performer than he would normally. Um how about Vince also giving a rating that has nothing to do with what they're actually selling? <laughs> yeah, I know. Because it's indication sales. Like, yes, you could be trying to sell Saturday Night's Main Event overseas. But that's not what you're talking about when you're bringing up ratings. And he's like, oh, yeah, that's indicative of what our other programming does. Like, yeah, I'm sh- as we talked about, the syndication rating, ratings for, rank, for wrestling in this era are bullshit. Especially in 86. In 86, they have not... I mean, they may be doing the, like, combines different, like, showings notation, but, like, wrestling is, the wrestling packages are still ranked in the syndication rankings, in the trades and whatnot, at that point. So, that's interesting, then, that he does it, that he didn't use the bullshit rating, that he used the Saturday Night's Event rating, because he could have used the bullshit rating, but... But yeah, I don't think anyone else even had anything like this at Nappy anyway. Like, as far as, like, a huge, like, anything that was more than a booth. So, like, of course, like, the you have all these board TV salesmen and station reps and stuff. Of course they're going to want to check out the wrestling. And, of course, it's going to help them get new stations. Yeah. Alright, well, let's go to the World Bodybuilding Federation. Yeah! The first edition of WS. Bodybuilding Lifestyles magazine hit stands on December the 6th. From all accounts, this premier issue was a major disappointment. Not only very little substance to it, but graphically, it was nowhere close to the competing Weeder magazines. What Dave felt was the most interesting about the magazine is Titan taking a completely different approach to competition than they did in the wrestling business. As everyone knows in wrestling, Titan tried to pretend there was no other wrestling and they have no other comp- competition. Even though their own actions, in many cases, make that idea laughable, even given that they are worlds above in exposure to any other wrestling in this country. Not so here. The first issue had a letter. Dave knows how can you have a letters page when you don't have even put an issue out yet. <laughs> that is very true. How did that happen? No, uh, not the only magazine or only even only wrestling related magazine that's ever done this. But I know, but still, it's so ridiculous. Yes. From someone complaining about the quality of Muscle and Fitness, Weeder's Main Magazine, and in particular the continued references to Joe Weeder. The letter claimed that Weeder's name was mentioned 224 times in a recent issue. Which actually sounds like a conservative estimate, but just the fact that they would have someone count the references says something about the policy in this field. 
There was also coverage of Joe Weider's main annual contest, Mr. Olympia, called it disorganized and applying the fans was point of the show and also came up right out and basically said that Lee Labrada, who finished second Lee Haney, should have won. Unlike Weider, McMahon himself doesn't appear to need to feed his own ego with constant references to himself in the magazine. In fact, Dave didn't even notice one reference to Vince by name. Oh, there were many references to Titan Sports and the World Bodybuilding Federation, so this magazine will be the house organ for that. They promised to do, so, do for bodybuilding what they did for wrestling, which has both its good and bad side, Dave guesses. Another difference between this and virtually every other bodybuilding mag on the market is knowing the word steroids. Most bodybuilding mags have article after article on steroids, decrying their use, informing readers to their hazards, while totally hypocritically on the next page treating against heroes, the bodybuilders who look the way they do for a specific reason, that take steroids in huge quantities. This mag simply doesn't address the issue, which doesn't surprise Dave. Dave doesn't think we'll see any negative stories or anything really in the bodybuilding, whereas some of the other mags, weeders to a lesser extent than the rest, actually make an attempt at doing legitimate journalistic coverage. Unlike in wrestling, where the mainstream journalism has always been aimed at a younger crowd and so afraid of the kayfabe violations, and Brisbane Man will be open to close scrutiny here. However, thus far, he's fared pretty well, except that it has been well reported that Titan Sports denied they were going to create their own federation to every reporter. In fact, Jonathan Flora, who has Titan's bodybuilding side, was basically called a liar in two magazines when he said just days before the announcement that the rumor circulating that Titan would create their own federation was outright ridiculous. Weeders magazines themselves are the only ones yet to acknowledge Titan's interest in the field. And interestingly enough, Weeders people have contacted Ted Turner about trying to get some kind of television package for their bodybuilders. Figuring if a man get weekly TV, then just for sheer exposure, he will dominate the business. Right now, it appears that Lee Haney and Sean Ray, who plays first and third, respectively, Mr. Olympia, will stay with Weeder. Lee Labrada, who was pushing in Man's Magazine's Uncrowned Olympia, said that made no firm decision. Labrada, who's five foot four, making him kind of the Keiji Yamada bodybuilding, appears to be the one who would be foolish to join a man because of his size fetish on who to push, using pro wrestling as an example. Mike Christian, who plays fourth, was the highest place in the Olympic contest at Lucy and Titans camp. Talk is Titans' first contest will be in April. One thing in man's favor, even if Weeder can keep Haney and Ray, is that since Weeder will surely uh, continue steroid testing, which can't be beaten, but it does require some discretion in usage, particularly in the key last few weeks, and man won't, that even though Weeder's top guys may have their genetic advantage, and bodybuilding's money genetics and steroids, since everyone at that level trains hard and consistently, man's guys may look more impressive without the testing, and that's really all that matters to the hardcore bodybuilding public. But if all man does is draw the hardcore bodybuilding fan, then he'll fall because there aren't enough a lot, a lot of them out there to make his federation successful enough to carry big guaranteed salaries. So his real key is making bodybuilding mainstream, which of course will alienate the hardcores and require massive changes in presentation, and hardcores hate change, particularly if it affects product quality. Yeah. So where do we start here? I don't know. Wherever you want to start. So Sean Ray. Sean Ray was the main guy I interviewed when I did the WBF article for Vitic Spirit Magazine, in part because I couldn't get really any of the actual WBF guys to talk. But he was a known, you know, Olympia-placing guy who had, had gotten an offer. And he was a great interview because he's also very much like a bodybuilding historian and stuff. So he was able to give a lot of perspective and all that his main reason or one of the main reasons he didn't jump was that he was offered less money than Gary Strike, who he had just beaten or placed ahead of, however you want to put it at Mr. Olympia. 
And he tried to negotiate, and they wouldn't budge. Here's what he told me. Quote, they like the big, big guys, because uh, Sean's 5'7", so not hugely tall. And Gary had a strong persona and was going to be their flagship star. Before Thanksgiving 1990, I decided I had a better opportunity to win the Mr. Olympia and be the number one bodybuilder in the world, rather than go to a two-year experiment run, or go on a two-year experiment run, with no guarantees of a third or fourth year contractual raise, or even that the Federation would last. And, you know, he basically made the call, like, okay, I'm going to, you know, stick with the IFBB, and it worked out for him. You know, he never became Mr. Olympia, but I think it's aside from the next one, he places top five in every Olympia he competes in until he retires, and was on the cover of Flex more than any other bodybuilder. So he was, he made the right choice. Now. The magazine, that shit's just ridiculous. <laughs> you know, are you there? I don't hear you. Yeah, I'm sorry. I was on oh, mute. you were I muted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had to blow my nose. I forgot to take myself off mute. <sighs> Counting the number of times Joe Weeder is mentioned in Muscle and Fitness. Well, yeah. And this is, you know, this is 1990, so they're doing that by hand, going through every page of the magazine. <laughs> um, I mean, the... The two big things, it seems like, though, with the bodybuilders themselves was both, like, who they were interested in, who they wanted to push. It seems like Vince was making mainly looking for tall guys and white guys. Because, you know, once it's established who their roster is, I remember in The Observer what Dave said was that Vince didn't get the top guys, but he got a lot of the guys that were being considered the quote-unquote great white hopes of the IFBB. As yeah. the, the white guys who might have a chance at Mr. Olympia, because you had your Lee Haney black, Sean Ray black. Who who else of the, like, the top-placing guys in that era were black? Oh, I don't remember. But it's only... Uh, Aaron Baker's the only black bodybuilder who jumps, right? I guess I can't. I can't think of anyone else. I think everyone else is white, and of course, and you go, and of course, the, the push top star is the big, tall, white South African in Gary Stratum. Now, yeah. I guess I'll end on this note. Uh, as far as the magazine, so I did also interview Dr. Fred Hatfield, the WBF uh, head of research and development, and I did not put this in the article. In part because I was not able to secure an interview with the WBF magazine editor in time. Uh, he told me that, and it, I mean, this was true from looking at her background, this part at least. They hired a woman who, and I don't know if this is at the beginning or after it becomes WBF magazine. But they hired a woman who had previously been the editor-in-chief of Playgirl. Playgirl, of course, despite how in theoretically on the surface it's marketed is read much more by gay men than straight women. Yes. So any editor worth their salt would be trying to target that audience. And yes. I, at least going by what Fred Hatfield told me, I guess she assumed that if they were hiring her to run a bodybuilding magazine, they would want the same thing. So, the way Hatfield put it to me was there was some kind of photo shoot of bodybuilders cavorting on a beach together. 
that yeah. he basically felt was too gay. And I, I forget if he went to Vince's office or Tom Platt's office. I think it's one of the two. And showed him the magazine and got her fired. <laughs> yeah. Which, by the way, have you ever seen an actual issue of the WBF magazine or Bodybuilding Lifestyle? No. It's weird because I have a couple WBF magazines. It has the layout of that era of WWF magazine. So you have this like really like kitty layout alongside all this bodybuilding stuff. And I guess at one point, uh, bodybuilders cavorting on a beach together. Yeah. So, uh, it's just such a, the whole experiment here. Maybe some more people will be willing to talk at some point. I don't know. Like, you know, I tried, like I tried talking when I did the article and God, that's almost a decade ago now. You know, Jim Quinn at first said he might do it, but then didn't. And because he was sometimes Shane McMahon's personal trainer, which I think he is like officially now and has been for years. A um, couple others like ghosted me when we said we were going to do interviews like uh, what's his face? Uh, the short, older guy, I forget his name, the one who was already like in his early 40s. But yeah, it's like people just didn't want to talk or they said they would and get cold feet like i don't know if it's a vince thing or what but there you go it's i think it's why we still don't like yeah it's not like anyone's done an oral history or anything we it's so much of what we have it's either from people like sean ray and maybe occasionally others doing interviews with like bodybuilding sites they're comfortable with it's really that and like the older stuff from the newsletters and whatnot uh i i find it a fascinating topic though because it's just like how could you have thought this could be a success? Uh, Vince thought he could turn people around. Yeah, I guess he thought that the striations had mainstream appeal. That's just something he was into, and he thought other people would be into it, too. Uh. Alright, well that is it for us this week. Next week, we go to 1997. Where we'll have news on why Jack Owen was let go from WCW. We'll have uh, an interesting episode of Monday Nitro featuring the debut of Brett the Hitman Hart. And what went wrong there? As uh, <laughs> It is a wild episode of Nitro and for many reasons, including fans jumping in the ring. Um, plus, we'll have uh, news on an incident involving wrestlers and fans at a hotel bar in Buffalo. So we'll have that. Uh, we got news on uh, the lawsuit against Jerry Lawler regarding USWA. We got um, Stevie Richards possibly uh, having had to have career-ending surgery in ECW to talk about. We got uh, Taka Michinoku returning to Japan as WFL Heavyweight Champion for Michinoku Pro. We'll talk about that. Uh, not a lot in Japan during a week of everybody's off tour, but we had the Tokyo Sports Awards to talk about. But the big news from Japan is uh, the proposed Ken Shamrock Vitor, uh, Vitor, Ken Shamrock Nobuhiko Takada match that was going to take place in UFC Japan fell apart. And lots of news on that. And in the World Wrestling Federation, we got uh, all sorts of drama going on backstage. This is an interesting time. We got news on the British Bulldog trying to get a release from his contract. Jim Neidhart was his deal. We got Raw 
featuring uh, a lot of a lot of stuff on there. Let's put it that way, including uh, LOD against Shawn Michaels and Hunter Hearst Helmsley, which featured LOD being spotlighted like you've never seen him before. At the end of that show, Owen Hart cuts a shoot promo on Vince McMahon and uh, all kinds of other stuff. Is that the one with the weird reshoots? Or well, no, no, no. The reshoots was the '98 retirement thing, right? Or, or was it that yeah, they cut is, something in this one? I remember there being something on the Montreal crowd and stuff like that. But the big news, big news of our week was like in Charlotte for WCW. WF has some major issues at house shows. Oh, we're here. finally doing that week, huh? In Memphis and Little Rock, and boy, it is crazy. Plus. A preview of a Los Angeles Times article that will come out after our week about the current product in the World Federation, which made Vincent Mann go on Raw in a pre-tape promo to answer back. All that more next week on Between the Sheets. No guest? No guest. And, uh... I don't know if the quality's that good. Yes, there is a photo of the uh, the scene at the Little Rock House show. That photo is still on the internet, thankfully. Yeah, there's a lot that was going on there. Folks, you will not believe this if you haven't heard it before. So, uh, yeah, lots of stuff. And you, uh, you have one guess as to what wrestler was considered most responsible and his uh, initials may or may not be HBK. <laughs> Partly, yes. I mean, uh, I, and we'll, we'll save it for then. I have a story about how things seem like they'd get out, might get out of control at the MSG show just before this too. So we'll we'll have a lot to talk. That about. you've told on the show before. Yes. All right. Well, that is it for us this week. We'll be back next week, like I said. Big thanks as always to the Rock of the Show. This is Kristen. So long from the Peach State of Georgia.
Patreon special edition number 86. I'm your host, Chris Zone. They're joined as always by my co-host, David Bixenspan. And Bix, it's time to take a little left turn in our Patreon shows here. Uh, normally, you know, we discuss all kinds of stuff, you know, business related or, you know, behind the scenes. I mean, there's going to be some business stuff and behind the scenes. I know, but I'm, yeah. I'm, but I'm just saying, but I'm talking about like, you know, stuff that's not involving things that's actually going on in front of the cameras. Right. A lot of Whereas time. this, it's going to be everything. Because this month, <sighs> we are talking about Ultimate Warriors run in WCW. One Warrior Nation. That's right. And uh, this idea came to my head as we were doing um, the 98 main show. The last one we did... That had the clips. The mirror. Of, uh, it was the mirror episode. The mirror, yeah. the mirror episode, yeah. And we already done the one where the disciple was on his knees uh, pretending to fillet the warrior. And uh, it's just, I was like, man, this this would be an interesting show just to do an all-encompassing look at this run of insanity, which only lasts three months, basically. So... I was like, this, it, somebody needs to do this show where we can just have everything under one big umbrella here. And uh, we were, this was a good month to do this on, I thought, as we're, as uh, the run basically came to an end in November of 98. So 25th anniversary of that. Yes, I had forgotten that he did last into November, that he was there for the show <laughs> after Halloween Havoc until I did this. Well, and the thing was, I don't know if you had this in the notes, but we'll have it on the main show that we do uh, before this comes out, the, the William Lanham Survivor Series show. He was actually brought into Nitro in Wichita in mid-November, but was never used. I think that's in here, yeah. Okay. No, it wasn't even used. Think about that. So, all right, let's get started. So, yeah, Warriors shows up, you know, in what, August? Yes. You might be surprised to know that this was a done deal long before he actually showed up on television. Yes, although I should give the caveat that there are all sorts of, maybe Jim Helwig's debuting soon, maybe it would be good to debut him on this date stuff in the torch and more so the Observer for weeks and weeks that there was no reason to include. But even though so, yeah. we still have over four pages of pre-debut books. So yeah, so yeah, this was not something that was just thrown together and done this was something that was building so let's go all the way back to march march 16th 1998 arizona republic march 17th warrior pins wrestling federation by jane larson for the arizona republic the first man ever to be hulk hogan has pinned an even more formidable opponent the world wrestling federation itself valley businessman and one-time professional wrestler known as warrior has won a Maricopa County Superior Court battle with his former employer over trademark rights to his distinctive name. Of course, uh, Warrior would be in the county with Sheriff Joe. <laughs> his distinctive name, face paint, trade dress, persona. Judge Stephen Sheldon ruled last month that Warrior created and owns this immensely popular wrestling character despite signing contracts that licensed it to the World Wrestling Federation, said Warrior's lawyer Sean Aiken of the Phoenix law firm Haber, Schink, and Johnson. An issue is ownership of the trademark rights are key to comic book, movie, and licensing deals. 
Warrior hopes income from these enterprises will give him a slice of the multi-million dollar pro wrestling industry and catapult his Scottsdale-based Ultimate Creations, Inc. into the big time. Good luck with that. Ultimate Creations, which Warrior concedes has yet to be profitable, is built around Warrior's good guy superhero wrestling character, one who encourages kids to believe in themselves and become their own style of Warrior. Warrior's World workout videos, t-shirts, and posters all sold on his website, ultimatewarrior.com, are just the beginning. Warrior has a concept for a TV show, and he believes his comic books, four so far, are ripe for an animated movie. Oh yeah, four, the last of which was released over a year and a half ago. Warrior, who believes so much in his character that he legally changed his name from James Helwig in 1993, also envisions what he calls Warrior University. He originally planned it as a gym to train pro wrestlers, but now sees it as a chain of learning and exercise centers that will instill responsibility and self-esteem in young people. I want to make a kid realize he can achieve whatever he wants, the 38-year-old said. Wait, so was he wanting to turn it from a wrestling school into the fucking Infinity Cult from that SVU episode? <laughs> like, what? Well, maybe. He wanted to mentor youngsters, Biggs. He wanted to groom them. And uh, the ways of the warrior. A lot of indoctrination about how queering don't make the world work, I'm guessing. <laughs> but anyway, he might even resume his first career, though, with the WS chief rival, Ted Turner's World Championship Wrestling Organization. The lawyer for Titan Sports, Inc., the business that created the World Wrestling Federation and made it tops of sports entertainment, said the wrestling group isn't on the ropes yet. Warrior civil lawsuit against Titan over breach of contract kind of mutated into a trademark dispute, and the judge's ruling is not the final step, said Jerry McDevitt of Pittsburgh law firm Kirkpatrick and Lockhart. Yes, uh, we should say, uh, according to what Dave Meltzer said on uh, Observer Radio recently, 2024 Observer Hall of Fame uh, ballot selection, Jerry McDevitt. Hey, yeah, I mean, he's probably uh, he probably have a good chance of getting in. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think it's a good idea to reward someone for how good they are at negotiating sexual assault uh, settlements. He's good at his job on his, yeah. on that side, I should say. Yeah, but he's good at his job. Well, look, I mean, sexual offenders are in the Hall of Fame already, Bick. So, I mean. Oh. Why not have the guy that defending them in there, too? But anyway, the opinion deals with the court's perception of creation. That's a different issue from ownership, McDevitt said. He said the Federation's deal with Warrior was simple. Duffy uses fast television network to make up a star in exchange for owning the character and paying him royalties on merchandise sales. Warrior says his passion to help kids grew out of his youth in Crawfordsville, Indiana. His father left his family when he was 12. Warrior says and has left his mother to raise five children alone. It was an exercise that helped him overcome self-doubts and a high school label of least likely to succeed. Warrior recalled, when I realized I could change my phys- physicality, I realized I could change other things in life, he said. Okay. Well, first so you of ca- all. So you kind of yeah. get, get with Warrior how he had some issues when he was younger. Yes. That, sh- that shaped him. To a degree, yes. And the the trademark thing is being very oversimplified here, though. As we've talked about before, what happened was when he signed the contract in 96, part of the deal was that they would transfer the Ultimate Warrior trademark ownership to him as part of signing the contract. And it ended up being the belief of the McMahons and WWF that he never intended to see the contract out and did it solely so he could get the trademarks. Yeah. 
So I mean, this kind of gives it. It kind of gives you some context as, as well on Warrior and why he was so deep into his character, because as a youngster had this going on, he probably had some type of escapism, maybe. And he's still you know, a struggling bodybuilder until the Ultimate Warrior, basically. So yeah. he sees the Warrior as what finished taking him out of that life or whatever. Warrior says he was working on a chiropractic degree at Life University in Atlanta. Yeah. And facing hefty student loans when he was invited to wrestle in an outlaw league in 1985. That's an interesting way to phrase that. All he of was that. Rick, Rick Bassman, and we don't know what kind of wrestling Warrior may have done before him and you know Sting went to Memphis. No, he, no, they didn't do any. They hadn't finished training yet. They got tired of it and decided to start sending out promotional photos. And Jerry Jarrett was the only one who bit. So they never wrestled one match as a power team members. No, just the promotional photos. Okay. While some wrestlers are assigned a basic character and left to develop their own style, Warrior says he developed his costumes and persona on his own. It was a poorer version of Warrior then, he says. But after 10,000 cans of tuna and lots of sleeping on floors, things started to click. How far someone goes into business is all the talent's responsibility, Warrior said. He soon caught the attention of WF, where his character proved so popular that he was on the road 325 days a year. In different cities every night. He fell in love with the Valley the first time he stepped off the plane for a match and moved here in 1989, he said. He had pro wrestling's peak in 1990 when the Tokyo Sky Dome for 69,000 fans, where he became the first pro wrestler allowed by the WF script to beat the legendary Hulk Hogan. But he grew increasingly upset with what he called the WF's deceptive business practices. Their contract was so constraining. They said they owned everything about you. Whatever you did, whatever you said, however you moved in the ring, they owned Warrior said. In 1991, he had his first fallout with WF and disappeared from the ring for eight months. He returned briefly in 1992, but their next agreement turned into a three-year hiatus. Well, I don't know what that is. Yeah, something in the OCR from newspapers.com got messed up here. McDevitt says that, among other things, Warrior refused to show up for matches, which had very damaging effects on ticket sales, federation, and other aspects of the business. He returned to WF in 1996 after working on a deal that he thought would give the federation back. A ticket selling name and give his comic book venture access to those merchandising and marketing power. But Warrior says they started using his comic books and always believe ideology for their own benefit, promoting it at toy licensing shows and telling him he didn't need to show up. He left again, prompting a flurry of court action over the alleged breaches of contract and trademark disputes. Aiken, Warrior's lawyer, said a case like Warrior and Ultra Creation Inc. versus Titan Sports Inc. at all comes along every once in a, every five or ten years. One issue over who owns the rights to the name, Ultimate Warrior, remains to be decided at an as-of-yet unscheduled trial. Aiken says the issue matters little because the judge already said Warrior owes a character behind the name. McDevitt says so, that the match is far from over. And he does end up with the name? Not yet. Not until after the WCW stuff is over, but he does. Yeah. So, this is where... Uh the artist formerly known as Jim Helwig is at this point. And it's the first, like, official thing saying he might be going to WCW. Yeah. Any further thoughts, or do you feel like... Well, it's a big, it's a, it's a good win for him in, in, in the court of law. Right, to say that yeah. he can do everything else, just we're not sure if he can be Ultimate Warrior yet. Yeah, it's a very good win for him. And it's the correct decision, because... 
even if he refined it in WWF, the the whole look, including the general design of the paint, was there before WWF. Yep, dingo. To hear this entire show, support Between the Sheets on Patreon for just $5 per month. Go to patreon.com slash between the sheets.